No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. I, I consider this one of the greatest opportunities Israel's ever faced in the, in the Torah and one of the greatest failures we've ever committed. Instead of believing the Lord after the ten plagues experienced in Egypt, ten miracles, and then one miracle after another in the desert as God led us through the desert, we failed to believe the Lord. And listen, this is, this is after we started eating manna that was raining down from heaven. This is after we crossed the sea that was divided in two so that we walked across on dry land and it came back and swallowed up the Egyptian army. This is after God brought enough quail into the camp of Israel that it fed two million people. But we got to the point of decision. We were right at that point of decision. We were on the edge of going in by faith to receive the land of promise. And we, the sons of Jacob, we prefer to listen to the ten spies who said, no, there are giants in the land, rather than Joshua and Caleb who said, yes, there are giants, but God promised it to us. I think that that could be one of the biggest lessons that we ever learn as believers. God doesn't just hand us everything on a silver platter. We, he brings us to points of decision to trust him, to believe him. And you know what, friends? Those points are tests. What could have been the greatest moment and the greatest day of Israel's history became a great mournful day. I just want to share this with you. This is, I wasn't planning on sharing any of this, but I just felt inspired when I heard, when I was listening to the Torah reading. Instead of being a day of great rejoicing, and a day of great battle. Yep, there were, there would have been great battles, but great victories along with those battles. Instead, we chose to walk through the wilderness and die in the wilderness. Listen to this. Instead of a victory march and rejoicing, we had a funeral march for 40 years, 39 years. 15,800 people of Israel as we marched died every year. If I could bring it down a little bit closer to real numbers that we could grasp, it would be 1,300 people every month. How about this? We had 44 funerals and burials every single day, rather than a victory march in the land of Israel because we trusted the Lord. But God is so gracious, he gave us a second chance. The next generation grew up and believed God And we went in and took the land of promise. Of course, there's a long history after that. One of these days, God will bring not just us as individuals to the place of decision where we make decisions for the Lord or actually against the Lord. There's no neutral ground, friends. Let God decide. He will. There's no neutral ground in our hearts. That's why Yeshua said, those who are not for me are against me. I want to share... what I, I want to share the last message in this series that we've been doing called Be Ready. Be Ready, friends. And this is not from the Torah portion, but I felt the Torah portion was very significant today to add to our understanding. 
a series hopefully preparing us for Yeshua's coming. But it doesn't matter. I can talk till I'm blue in the face. It doesn't matter one little whip until you actually and I actually begin to walk by faith and not by sight. Today, I've entitled this message, When He Comes. It comes from the very first verse that we're going to be looking into, which describes the judgment of the nations. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him. Friends, when Yeshua comes to sit on His glorious throne, He's coming in His glory. He's not coming as the Lamb of God, He's coming as the Lion of Judah and the Judge of all the earth. He will not only be the King of Israel, which was the phrase of the execution stake upon which He died, the King of the Jews. He's not only coming as the King of the Jews, He's coming as King of all the earth. And all the nations will bow down to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I just wanted to focus the first part of this message on his glory. His glory is like no other glory. Could I say, look, I could say this, but honestly, I don't have any experience in this. But I could say, and I will say, that his glory will outshine every luminary in the heavens. His glory will outshine the sun. His glory, and the sun is not even the brightest star by any means in the heavens. His glory will outshine the brightest star, the brightest sun in the heavens. It will outshine the brightest galaxy, the collection of stars and planets. In fact, we read in the book of Revelation that there's in, in the New Jerusalem, there's no need for the sun anymore because the light is coming from the glory of God. In fact, doesn't say it, but maybe we'll need sunglasses. Glory glasses. Yeah, it won't be called sunglasses. Glory glasses. And we will have those, by the way. You think I'm kidding? I'll show you in just a minute. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, it uses the word doxa, which is, some of you are familiar with, it just means glory. Glory, hallelujah, in Greek. But in the Tanakh, it comes from the word kavod which means glory, and it comes from an original word, which means weight, weight. Glory is not simply light, but glory is the weight of someone's name, someone's reputation, someone's giftings, someone's power is glory. And he will be accompanied, Yeshua, the Son of Man, will be accompanied by all the angels. You know why? Because there's not going to be one angel in heaven that's going to want to be left behind. Some of you have read the Left Behind series. That's going from here to there. Not one angel is going to be one of, is going to be left behind from there to here. That's the real left behind. All the angels will accompany him and he will sit on his glorious throne. The throne of King David actually will become glorious. Matthew in another passage in Matthew 16:27 says for the son Yeshua says for the son of man will come in his father's glory with 
his angels. Do you know that God is a jealous God? Do you realize God is a jealous God? In fact, it's the first commandment. It describes the first commandment. I am the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me because I'm a jealous God. Well, why is he jealous? He's jealous because every other God is a false God. He's the only true, ever-living God. And the Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, does not share his glory. Do you know that? That's why we are very careful to say all glory to the, all glory to the Lord. I'm not seeking any glory for myself. We always, sometimes we say that when don't, don't really mean it. All glory to God. Let me just, all glory to God. But it's true. All glory to God. We cannot handle in this body with our current mind and our current heart and our current body and our current soul. We cannot handle the weight of the glory of God. We even read in the scripture when someone comes into the presence of the glory of God, what happens? They fall down like they're dead because they can't handle the weight of the glory of God. But one day we will. But in the meantime, the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory. God doesn't share his glory with anybody, but he shares it with Yeshua. That should give you a hint of who Yeshua is. Let's take a, let's take a glimpse, a, a, a glimpse at the glory of, of the Son of Man. Sort of, I call it a pre-image. The image that we get in this case before the New Testament was ever conceived or written. In Ezekiel 1 verse 26 through 28, above the dome, Ezekiel's having the vision, above the dome that was over their heads, was something like a throne that looked like a sapphire. On it, above it, was what appeared to be a person. In Hebrew, Adam or Adam. So it's not just any person. We could say it's Adam. Or we could say it's a man. Yeshua is called the second Adam. What looked like fire. I, well, sorry. I saw what I looked, what looked like gleaming amber colored fire radiating from what appeared to be his waist and upward. Downward from what appeared to be his waist, I saw what looked like fire giving a brilliant light all around him. The glory of God sitting on his glorious throne. But he looked like Adam. He looked like a man. This brilliance around him looked like a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. Friends, here is a wonderful glimpse at what the glory of God will appear when, to us when we, what would it look like to us when we see. It looked like a rainbow to Ezekiel in a cloud on a rainy day. How many of us almost get into an, a car accident, you know, after the rain stops, and all of a sudden a beautiful rainbow appears in the sky, and we're looking there instead of looking on the road. can't tell you how many times Marlene has called out to me, Marty, Marty, look at this rainbow. You've got to see this rainbow. Friends, that's a little shadow of what it's going to look like when we see the glory of God. This was how the appearance of the glory of Adonai looked. When I saw it, I fell on my face. Why? Because the glory of God is so weighty, so glorious, so weighty. Friends, you and I are going to do the same thing. We will fall on our face. 
When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of someone speaking. I saw it, and then I heard a voice. Here's a post image, a glorious post image. That was a pre-image. This is a post image. It's pre to us because we haven't seen it yet. But I heard behind me a voice. Remember that? Remember what Ezekiel said? I saw and I heard a voice. This is Yohanan, John, writing because Yeshua is speaking to him saying, write down these words in the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of Yeshua. I heard behind me a loud voice. And I turned around and I saw. What did he see? Someone like a son of man. This is very much like Ezekiel's vision, but even closer. I saw someone like the son of man. And if we were to read the entire chapter, chapter one, we would see how glorious the imagery is describing the son of man, Yeshua, in his glory. Here's a little bit of it. His hair was like snow white wool. I don't know if you've ever seen paintings or images of Yeshua in his glory. Have you ever seen those? You can go on the internet and see them. I challenge you to count how many of those images have Yeshua with snow white wool hair. Those images in his glory, they put him with dark hair, like youthful, never aging, dark beard, and in his glory. Well, friends, that's not how Yochanan saw Yeshua. His hair was like snow-white wool, including his beard. His eyes were like a fiery flame. Some of you who were, who somebody, some of you attended here uh, this week when we hosted the TJC2 consultation. And look, if you're sitting there and you're saying, I didn't even hear about it, it's okay, none of you heard about it. It was a, it was not a meeting for the congregation. But Don Finto, who you know, he was here a few weeks ago, friend of mine, Pastor Don Finto is 85 years old. He's the same age that Caleb was when Caleb went to Joshua at the end of the 40 year march. Caleb went to Joshua and said, I'm as strong today as I was 40 years ago. Give me that hill country. 85. When Don Finto stood up here, you could feel the same thing. 85-year-old man, and you saw the fire in his eyes. I hope I can be like that. Fire, eyes like a fiery flame, feet like a polished furnace on fire. A little glimpse of the glory of the Son of Man. And here's some glorious connections. Some of it stories, some of it doctrinal teaching. In Daniel chapter 7, Verses 9 through 14, at the beginning, we see the Ancient of Days entering a great hall, a great hall of judgment, by the way, and he sits on his throne, and he took his seat and his hair. I'm just describing in very brief here. I didn't have enough room to write the word white, but his hair is like white, pure white wool. Just very similar to the description we just saw in the book of Revelation about Yeshua. He took his seat on his throne, ready to judge. And in the last verse, in 14, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds and stood before the ancient of days, before the ancient one, and was given eternal rulership and glory and an eternal kingdom. Yeshua said, 
The Son of Man is coming with His Father's glory and all the angels. Here, Daniel describes something very similar. What, you think Yeshua read the Old Testament? He probably wrote it. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds stood before the Ancient One and was given eternal rulership and glory and eternal kingdom. Rulership, kingdom. Some of your Bibles say dominion, the Son of Man, Yeshua. That's, by the way, that is why Yeshua loved the term, the phrase, the Son of Man. He called himself the Son of Man all the time. We think that he that that he references him to, he references uh, him himself connect the, with the connection of God being the Son of God when he when he uses the term Son of God. But that's not the case. The deity factor in Yeshua is when he references himself to the Son of Man. Someone like the Son of Man stood before the Ancient of Days. Someone like the Son of Man sit sat on the throne. He receives eternal rulership, glory, and a kingdom, the Son of Man. In Messianic Jews, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I've read this to you many times, and you've read it. God in these last days has spoken to us in his Son in the former days through the prophets, etc. But now in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, Yeshua, whom he appointed as heir of all things through him. He made the eons. Your version may say through him he made the world or the worlds. But the, but the word is literally eons. He's made the ages. He made the eternities through Yeshua. And he has appointed him as the heir of all things from beginning to end. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the radiance of his glory. I hope you don't get tired of me saying this, but our room is full of light. Well, it could be brighter, but I mean, it's full of light, and it's coming from these lamps. If you look up, you'll see the lamps. We're not seeing the light. We're seeing the radiating factor of these lamps. Electricity, in a way, is a mystery. Some of you understand it more than I do. Electricity is kind of a mystery, and, the, and you know, Edison created this thing called the light bulb, and we use it now, and it radiates light. He is the radiance, Yeshua. He's like the lamp of God's glory. You want to see God's glory? It's going to come through the lamp. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. That's why Yeshua was able to say to his disciples, you want to know the Father? You know me. If you know me, you know the Father. The Father and I are one. Okay, that doesn't blow anybody's mind. I'll tell you what does. He says, Father, make them one with us. Whew, what does that mean? Oh, we're going to be in loving unity with God. Well, what that means is we become conduits. We become lamps of God's glory. How is the world going to know Yeshua, the glory of God? They're going to, they may know the world may know Yeshua, the glory of God, through the little lamps, you and me, radiating God's glory by the power of the presence of His Holy Spirit, His Ruch HaKodesh. And here it is, friends. Ready? You ready for this? What's it going to be like when He returns? We're going to be like Him. You want to be able to be in the glory of God's presence? You can't do it unless we become like Him. In 1 John, 1 Yochanan chapter 3, verse 2, Dear friends... We are God's children now. 
And it has not yet been made clear what we will become. We do know that when he appears, when Yeshua appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he really is. Did you catch that, friends? We will see him as he really is. There's a little hint in here. There's a little hint going on here. I'm going to see you and you're going to see me as we really are when he comes because we are going to become like him. Don't go around saying, oh, I know Rabbi Marty. You may know me now as I am, but I'm not yet what I will become when he appears. And neither are you. By the way, let's not give up on each other. We haven't reached the end yet. We're not home yet. He hasn't appeared to us yet. So here is Yeshua. After all the parables that he gave in response to his disciples' questions, when will all these things be? When, 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 when is the end of the age? When are you going to return? At the beginning of Matthew 24. He's been talking now for two chapters. So have I. See, I'm already becoming like Yeshua. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as or like. Remember what happens when you see the word as or like. Oftentimes we're just, he's leading us right into a parable or a story or a midrash. Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous are going to answer him on this right, and they're going to say, Lord, I don't remember any of that. When did we come to you when you were hungry, or when you were naked, when you were sick, when you were in prison, when, when you were thirsty? When did, when did we come to you? And he's going to say, just as you've done it to the very least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. And remember, he's speaking this story, this parable, which has so much truth in it in reality. He's speaking it to his disciples, but he's speaking about the nations. He said, I, this is what the king will say to the nations, not to his disciples, to the nations. He's just teaching his disciples a lesson about the judgment that will come at the end of the age. All the nations will be assembled before him. He will separate, some of your versions say, people. But actually the word people is, is not in, this, in the text. It's a reference to the nations. All the nations will be assembled before him. He will separate one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Can this apply to individuals? Certainly. Nations are made up of individuals. But I encourage you at some point to read Revelation chapter 20, particularly focusing on verse 11 and 12, when the judge sits on his throne and a book is opened and books are opened. One of the books is the book of life. The other books, I believe, are the books of what you've done. And I'm going to focus on in, re in relationship to this passage right here. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we find a very interesting scripture. 
Just as you have done it to one of these brethren of mine, you've done it to me. Well, that's always controversial, isn't it? Who, who are the brethren? Well, it's all the followers of Yeshua, and indeed that, that may be it. But what if it's these brethren of mine, all the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What if it's the chosen people known as Israel? Just as you've done it to these brethren of mine, you've done it to me. He's speaking to the nations. The king is speaking to the nations. Just as you've done it to these brethren of mine, you've done it to me. So could it apply to individuals and the poor, the weak, the naked, the hurting? Yes, certainly. But for the purpose of this talk today, I'm simply applying it to the sons of Jacob, Israel, even the remnant, perhaps Messianic Jews, but let's just say the sons of Israel. So the judgment of the nations is determined by deeds and the treatment of Israel. That statement, you can argue against that statement, but from this passage and from the context and from the book of Revelation, I would argue this is pretty close. It could be argued that this is very close to what he means, the judgment of the nations, the king will, will, will declare to the nations, just as you've done it to my brethren, the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Just as, as you have treated Israel, my brethren, you've done it to me. But Yeshua is the key here. I've noted Ephesians chapters two and three because those are, that, those are very two important chapters. I encourage you to read it over again. He says, after the most famous verse that everybody quotes, In Ephesians chapter 2, we've been saved by grace through faith, not by our own works. It's a gift of God. Thus, we give birth to the whole doctrine of law as opposed to grace because we're saved by grace and not by works. We're saved by grace through faith. Friends, it's always been grace through faith. From Genesis to Revelation, that hasn't changed a bit. The chosen people of Israel had to walk by faith. In fact, when when we didn't walk by faith, God says, stop sacrificing to me. It's just a stinky stench to my nostrils because you're doing it out of, out of ritual and rote. You're not doing it from your heart. So tear your heart, not your garments, when you come before me. It's always been by grace through faith. It's a gift from God. We don't earn it. But the very next verse says, but God has foreordained works for you to do. But then he goes on to say, now I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. You were far off and now you've been brought near. When you were far off, you had no hope in the world, but now you've been brought near into the commonwealth of Israel. The commonwealth of Israel. What's the wealth of Israel? What's the commonwealth of Israel? The promises and the covenants, the fact that Yeshua, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9, The fact that Yeshua comes from Israel in his humanity. You've been far off, you were far off, but now you've been brought near into the commonwealth of Israel, into the treasure, into the covenants, into the promises by the blood of Yeshua. This is the turning factor, friends, for everybody. This is the change factor for everyone. Yeshua is the key. Yeshua's fullness or fulfillment in Israel what he did, what he came to do, and brought the fullness of what he came to do to bear in Israel. He uh, brought a change of destiny for the goyim, for the nations. Do you hear that? What Yeshua did as Israel personified, as the Son of God, as the sacrifice lamb, 
What he did changed the destiny of the goyim, of the, of the Gentiles. And this, my friends, is inexor- inexorably tied to Israel's destiny and Israel's inheritance in Yeshua. So the Jews and the Gentiles are so tied together, we need each other and we can't really move ahead without walking through God's plan through his window. Israel's destiny is to be a light to the nations as the representative of God, and the Gentiles' destiny is to receive the light, Yeshua, to become a, to, be, to become one with the commonwealth of Israel and destiny. That's why Rav Shaul says to the Gentiles, you have now become co-heirs with God's people. It doesn't mean co-heir, you haven't become heirs instead of God's people, co-heirs together with God's people. Together, Israel and the nations, and by the way, we're living in the age now where it's first to the remnant. There's a remnant of Israel and a remnant of the nations who believe Yeshua. Not all the nations, not all of Israel have come yet. But together, in Ephesians chapter 3, together Israel and the nations, or the remnant from Israel and the remnant from the nations, we declare together by the Messiah an end to satanic rule over the world. We're declaring that. You read it. That's why I'm encouraging you. Read Ephesians 2 and 3. You'll see that the declaration is made into the heavens to the powers and spiritual to the spiritual powers of darkness. In the end, of course, in Zechariah 14, all the nations will come up to Jerusalem to worship the king. That's the end result. So Israel today, I've said this to you many times, but Israel today is a watershed. Yeshua is the watershed for Jews. Yeshua is the watershed for Israel. What side of the watershed will we fall on? Faith or unbelief? That's what happened in the Torah portion that was read today. We're going to fall on faith, two spies, or we're going to fall on unbelief, ten spies. But Israel is the watershed for the nations. Are you going to treat my brethren, the least of these, the way you should? The nations, the ethne or the goyim, will be judged according to the treatment of these, my brothers, Matthew 25, verse 40. Check out Romans 9. His brothers in present tense, unbelieving brothers in present tense, still have the covenants and the promises, still have the temple service. The temple's gone now, but actually the temple, the word temple's not in that passage, it's just inserted there. And from whom comes the Messiah, Yeshua, in humanity or in the flesh? The destiny of the nations is tied up with the destiny of Israel. As Israel goes, so the nations go. That's why I, I don't know how many times I've said believers are shooting themselves in the foot when they support actions against Israel and the Jewish people, when anti-Semitism is allowed to flourish in nations where there are believers, it's like shooting the nation in the foot. If Israel's stumbling in Yeshua meant riches for the world, riches for the nations, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Melech Yeshua is the key. King Yeshua is the key to all of this. We all must be found in him. We all must trust in what God has provided. Oh, just a minute. Let me, let me just share with you that I'm about to show some 
parental guidance pictures. So if you have a little child with you, just keep that in mind. It's, it's PG-13. When I was hungry, you fed me. Or you didn't feed me, depending if you're on the right or the left. These are Soviet Jews, right after the ravaging of the Nazis had come through, who were homeless and left out in a field, hungry. When I was hungry, this is in the Warsaw Ghetto, children who were just scrapping for any, any bite to eat. Of course, you can, you can take pictures today of, of, of tragedies all over the world, but I'm focusing right now on Israel. When I was thirsty, pictures from Dachau, concentration camp. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, these are Hungarian Jews who were just getting off the freight cars in Auschwitz, being led to their slaughter. They don't know it at this moment, but they're heading straight. They're heading straight for the gas chambers and then the crematoria. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, these are pictures from Buchenwald concentration camp. When I was sick at Matthausen concentration camp. Most of these are death camps. When I was in prison in Buchenwald, finally the liberators came. Nations who then fought Hitler and won and brought some semblance of life back to the survivors, these Jewish survivors, and they were rejoicing. When he comes, we shall rejoice. There'll be a great liberation. And Yeshua is coming, friends. Are you ready? As Tzachi was, Rabbi Tzachi was saying before, are you ready to meet with him face to face? Be ready to be faithful. Be ready to be accountable. It's a terrible thought, isn't it? Be ready to be accountable. Be ready to rejoice when he comes. Adonai, we just thank you and bless you for who you are on this good Shabbat day. Thank you for giving us the hope and encouragement of your return. Lord, help us to walk by faith in you and be ready for your coming. Lord, we... Ready or not, Lord, come on. We just, we just want to see you face to face. Bless you, Lord. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. May Adonai bless you and keep you. May Adonai lift up his face upon you and be gracious to you. May Adonai lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Ve'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavlecha V'chunecha Yishar Adonai panavlecha V'asem lecha Shalom. In the name of our Messiah, Yeshua. Shabbat Shalom. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. Shalom and welcome to Torah Kai, God's teachings of life from Congregation Zion State, a Messianic Jewish congregation located on the corner of Dimby Boulevard and Shields Road in Newport News, Virginia. Our biblical mandate as Jewish believers is to be a light unto the world by sharing Yeshua. 
Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, to the Jew first, then the nations as prescribed in Romans 1.16, bringing God's plan of salvation to the ends of the earth. We hope you enjoy today's teaching. Justice and Truth, actually from this week's Parsha. In Exodus 32, starting at verse 1, when the people saw that Moshe was taking a long time to come down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Get busy and make us gods to go ahead of us, because this Moshe, this man that brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Adultery, rebellion, and gossip. Moshe had previously been on Mount Sinai while receiving the 613 mitzvahs and commands. God was revealing his plan to Israel through Moshe for a blessed and covenant life. Adonai was extremely specific when he said in Exodus 23, verses 1 and 2, You are not to repeat false rumors. Do not join hands with the wicked by offering perjured testimony. Do not follow the crowd. Let me say that again. Do not follow the crowd when it does what is wrong. And don't allow the popular view to sway you into offering testimony for any cause if the effect will be to pervert justice. Despite this very specific warning given here, Israel had committed adultery. They grumbled, slandered. They gave false testimony regarding Moshe. In fact, they moved into open rebellion. The people's word are partially true, but a partial truth is a lie. So much of what's going on here is not recorded or not mentioned in the Scripture. Anarchy is breaking out. People are are rebelling against Moshe and his brother Aaron. They're being manipulated by a controlling spirit. The enemy had crept in. Remember Genesis, it says he's sins crouching at the door, ready to pounce. The enemy had crept in, seated the lie, and down. Then people picked it up and they ran with it. They said, get busy and make us gods to go ahead of us because this Moshe, this man that brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. That is a complete farce. Moshe had been up on the mountain. He had come back down and relayed to all the people everything the Lord had said. In fact, in Exodus 24, verse 3, Moshe came and told the people everything Adonai had said, including all the rulings. And the people answered, Kolichad, with one voice, we will obey every word Adonai has spoken. Then Moshe went back up with 70 leaders of Israel who saw God's glory. In fact, they dined partway up on the mountain in the presence of God. Moshe was given further instructions for building the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and for the high priest and how to minister unto God. All the people saw Moshe and the 70 go up to the mountain. They all saw the cloud, the fire swirling around the mountain. They heard the rumbling thunders. Yet this rebellion ended with a golden calf. It ended in idolatry which was contrary to the very first and second God command, the very first and second command God gave them back in Exodus 20. Starting in verse 1, Then God said all these words, I am Adonai your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. You are to have no other gods before me. It's the first thing he said. You are to have no other gods before me. Number two, you are not to make for yourselves a carved image of any kind, of representation of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the water below the shoreline. You're not to bow down to them or serve them, for I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. These are iniquities and curses. 
In fact, we have an ancient paths this weekend. We're going to nail and rail into these things and stop breaking these things off. But displaying grace to the thousandth generation of those who love me and obey my mitzvah. This golden calf thing turned out to be a very, very deadly mistake. The irony is not everyone acted this way, but it brought shame and judgment upon the entire nation. That's the irony. Just one that sins in the camp, and the entire camp is polluted. In verse 10 of Exodus 32, God states he's going to destroy them all. But Moshe, instead, he pleads with God for their lives. His intervention with God actually saved the nation of Israel. Moshe then shatters the stone tablets at the base of the mountain upon his return to camp. He took the golden calf, he burned it, he ground it to powder, then scattered it on the water and made the people drink it. He stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come with me. And all the Levites, they rallied to him. And he commanded those who were with him to go among the people and kill those who had been unfaithful. Three thousand lost their life that day. And just that day alone, three thousand. The next day, Moshe told the people they committed a grave sin. It went before the Lord in Exodus 32, starting at verse 31. Moshe went back to Adonai and said, Please, these people have committed a terrible sin. They've made themselves a god out of gold. Now, if you'll just forgive their sin, but if you won't, then I beg you, blot me out of your book, which you have written. We often quote the scripture in the fall time for Yom Teru and Yom Kippur. It's a common misnomer. When you got saved, your name wasn't recorded in the book. The day you were born, your name was recorded in the book. David said in Psalms, all my days were recorded before he even was birthed from the womb. What you do with your life, whether you receive Yeshua or not, determines if you stay in that book or not. And that book determines who's going to the wedding feast. And Moshe, he's willing. Another guy does this in the Bradashah, that's Paul. He says, my prayer to God, my heart's desire is that Israel would be saved. He said he'd be willing to give up his own salvation if the nation of Israel could all come to know Yeshua. This is a profound moment. Moshe, I know he wrote he was the most humble guy ever, but this is a profound moment. He's willing to sacrifice himself for the entire nation. But the Lord said in verse 33, No, those who have sinned against me, they're the ones I'll blot out of my book. Now go and lead the people to the place I told you about. My angel will go ahead of you. Nevertheless, the time for punishment will come, and then I will punish them for their sin. And I struck the people with a plague because they had made the calf the one Aaron had made, and even more people died. Israel was forgiven, but there are consequences for disobedience. Your choices, your actions, though always forgivable, they always have consequences. A great plague falls on the people. Even more die. Through this moral failure and tragedy, Israel learned the importance of responsibility and accountability regarding their choices, their actions, and their behavior. They began to learn the importance of obedience to God. Most people, especially those within the body of Messiah, don't realize that when they disobey, then repent. There is forgiveness in Yeshua. Praise God. But consequences still follow. King David had an affair with a married woman, Bathsheba. In fact, he even had her husband Uriah killed in battle. When confronted by Nathan the prophet, David repented. Yet there were still consequences for their action. They lost their son, who died after birth. Listen, you could rob a bank tonight. Turn right around and repent and ask Yeshua for forgiveness. You could even take the money back and put it back. But guess what? You're going to jail. 
There's consequences for your actions. Choices and actions have consequences. I have to say, as a nation, we're at an all-time high. It's a record high of immorality, deceit, slander, gossip, divisiveness, and anarchy. I haven't watched the news in two weeks. I'm so sick of it. Peaceful demonstration, standing for what one believes to be right and just, is good. Rioting, anarchy, shooting police, destroying, looting, and burning down both private and and public property, that is not of God. This is further fueled by sensationalism in the press, and I'm not going on a rant tonight, but the press no longer reports the news. (laughs) You know what I found out this week? Do you know that there's a journalist creed? I didn't know that. How come that doesn't get reported? It's been around for over a hundred years. In fact, it was written by Walter William in 1914. The creed has been published in more than 100 languages, and there's a bronze plaque of it at the National Press Club of Washington, D.C. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read a few snippets of this to you, the journalist creed. I believe that clear thinking and clear statement, accuracy and fairness are fundamental to good journalism. I believe that a journalist should write only what he holds in his heart to be true. I believe that suppression of the news for any consideration other than the welfare of society is indefensible. I believe that no one should write as a journalist what he would not say as a gentleman, that bribery by one's own pocketbook is as much to be avoided as bribery by the pocketbook of another, and that individual responsibility may not be escaped by pleading another's instructions or another's dividends. I believe that advertising, news, and editorial columns should alike serve the best interests of readers, that a single standard of helpful truth and cleanness should prevail for all, and that the supreme test of good journalism is the measure of its public service. Now, wait. I believe that the journalism which succeeds best and best deserves success fears God and honors man, is stoutly independent, unmoved by pride of opinion, is unmoved by pride of opinion or greed of power, constructive, tolerant, but never careless, self-controlled, patient, always respectful of its readers, but always unafraid, is quickly indignant of injustice, is unswayed by the appeal of privilege or the clamor of the mob, seeks to give every man a chance and as far as law and honest wage and recognition of human brotherhood can make it so an equal chance, is profoundly patriotic, there's a word you don't hear anymore, while sincerely promoting international good, I'm sorry, goodwill, and cementing world Comradeship is, is a journalism of humanity of and for today's world. That's not what we're getting today. 90% of the news, whether it's cable, printed, or mainstream media, listen to me, 90% of it is op-ed. It's op-ed. It's not news. It's opinion editorial. It's biased, opinionated editorial that's presented as something that's a fact. If the news would just report facts, and let you and I form our own, ofi- own opinion, we'd be in a far different place as a nation. And I tell you what's even worse, people think what they see and read on the Internet is true. Whoa. Now, I'm not opposed to free, pe- free press. We wouldn't be a republic or a free society without it. What I'm against is the bias of op-ed being presented as news. And, and why am I at this point? What, what does this have to do with Torah and Shabbat service? Well, Deuteronomy 16, verse 19 through 20, says you are not to distort justice or show favoritism. You are not to accept a bribe 
For a gift blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of even the upright. Justice, only justice, you must pursue so that you will live and inherit the land your God is giving you. Justice. You've heard me say this before. God is a just God. He never promises to be fair. Life isn't fair. Everything you do is not going to be fair. Every job interview you do is not going to be fair. Every task you get at work, it's not going to be fair. Every deal you get at the store, it's not going to be fair. But in the end, God is a just God. And those who deserve punishment will receive punishment. Those who, re- who will reap rewards of righteousness will have eternal life. That in itself isn't fair. But it's just. We're to seek justice. To inherit and keep our land. Uh, it justice, falsehood, slander, gossip, and anarchy, it's got to stop. And whatever fuels it must also be held accountable. From the mob mentality after police shootings, regardless of the facts, to the falsehood of America is a racist country, to cultural titles that breed division and separation within our nation. We must move into, walk in, and live according to truth and justice. Can I tell you a secret tonight? You're not an African-American. You're not an Irish-American. You're not Japanese-Americans. You're not Jewish-Americans or Mexican-Americans. You're just an American. If you're a citizen of this country, there's no other place in the world that you can get this eclectic group of a people. Listen to me. Every one of us could go to China right now, but guess what we won't be? Those titles make this place divisive. I quit answering the race questions when they give me surveys and when I have to fill out papers. I, I, now I do prefer not to answer. Why do we do this? Why do we break down? Now we're doing this at the government level. We're breaking down in, into divisions. It's a divisive spirit that wants to control things. It's straight from the pits of hell. When you legally immigrate, legally immigrate to America, as my own grandparents did, and do what's necessary to become a U.S. citizen, you are a U.S. citizen. Whether it's been your whole life or two weeks. Your kids are American. Your grandchildren are Americans. If you have a dream and work hard in this country, nothing can stop you or keep you being from being successful. But when chaos and anarchy rules, it's not from God. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, For God is not a God of unruliness, but of shalom. And what is shalom? The absence of conflict. As in all the congregations of God's people. I I like this connection. Because we're talking about two different things. We're talking about a national sense, but yet we're talking also within the body of Messiah. What's the most segregated day of the week? Wow. For those of you who didn't hear, Sunday. There's Hispanic church, Korean church, black church, white church. You know what every one of you in this room are made like? The image of God. Every one of you were created in perfection in his image. There's 35 million chromosomes in the DNA strand. 35 million. And less than 3,000 deal with eye color, hair color, and skin color. It's so buried in the minutiae, the scientists don't even study it. It's immaterial. In Israel, you're going to find... Chinese Jews, black Jews, Sephardi Jews, Ashkenazi Jews. But you know what they call them in Israel? Huh. Huh. Today, America is also plagued by a deceiving spirit of entitlement. 
I've shared this before. As a human being on this earth, you are not promised or guaranteed a thing. You're not owed anything. And contrary to what you've been taught or picked up along the way, particularly on TV or the Internet, you don't deserve anything. You don't have the right to take, steal, or loot something that isn't yours. Wi-Fi, Facebook, and cell phones are not an inalienable right. We were the first, if you will, our teenagers, this was all new, after the government invented the Internet. And we wouldn't let them have cable in the room. We wouldn't let them have computers in a room. And they were allowed to have cell phones. And they thought we were the meanest people on the earth. So be it. Because being just is not always fair. Come on, are you with me? Your 12-year-old has no right to cell phone or, or unlimited Internet access. You know what that is? Trouble with a capital T. You know where the overwhelming majority of pedophiles find their prey? Come on, say it out loud. The Internet! There's a whole new phobia and psychosis that's arisen in this world since the invention of Facebook. The divorce rate has gone up substantially. Why is that? Because someone starts contacting you on Facebook from 35 years ago that you've got no business. You've got no business talking to, talking with, or speaking about without your spouse knowing about it. You're going to find this incredibly unusual. Robinson and I, we don't have Facebook. How do they live? Just fine. Now, I'm not trying to convict you if you've got it, but this takes us back to Moshe. In fact, the event that happens with this golden calf, it happens again and again and again. As the, as the grumblers, the slanders, the gossipers, the disgruntled in the camp habitually accuse Moshe of various shortcomings and faults, that they brought Israel out to the desert to die, that Moshe thought he was better than them. Remember Korach? Matter of fact, Moshe's own brother and sister. What, are you the only one that hears from God around here? When fundamental biblical principles, commands, and mitzvahs are ignored or set aside, regardless of the situation, a door is open for the enemy, the accuser, Hasatan, to enter. And how do you know the accuser is present? Yeshua said you'll know them by their fruit in Matthew 7, 16. So when you begin seeing fruit that's fault-finding, full of fleshly criticism, the judges, the slanders, the gossips, does character assassination, haughtiness, pride, disobedience, self-loving, brutal, hateful of good. This is another scripture. I just took some from there. Unappeased, sin is present and God is not. When there's a critical spirit, it's easy to find the faults in everybody else. That's It's clearly, clearly, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. The problem is, what are you going to do about it? We know things aren't right in America. Stop pointing fingers. We all know it ain't right. But what are we going to do about it? We all know it's wrong. We don't need another million people telling us it's wrong. We already know it. When will it stop? When that fruit is, is there, it's sin is present, God is not. In fact, the Ruach HaKodesh is restricted. Here's the key. Listen to me. The power of God will be minimized. Amen. This is the litmus test. When the power of God begins departing. In fact, both times before the temple was destroyed, this is a fascinating history, both times it was Israel's most financially lucrative, materially wealthy time in their history. They were at the apex of trade and financial and material wealth. Yet they were as far and apostatized from God as they had ever been twice in our history. Do you see the correlation? Extreme wealth 
extreme material wealth and apostasy from God. And both times when those temples were destroyed, you know what happened? The presence of God departed before the temples were destroyed. Well documented. So we look around in the body of Messiah today. What's the fruit? Oh, ouch. What's the fruit? It's not good. The power of God is minimized. There's a lot of slander, a lot of, a lot of gossip. There's a lot of judgmental spirits, a lot of character assassinations. Come on. I see some shuffling. It's getting uncomfortable. It should be. You know, the writer of James says this thing right here. It's the most dangerous thing on you. Can't control it. Like a little TD rudder on a huge ship. This guides and steers everything that you do. You know, Yeshua said that you'll be held accountable for every word. Did you hear that? Every word! Every offhanded comment. Every foul criticism. Every point of judgment. Every slander. Every gossip. Every word. For those who would say that America is a racist nation, I'd refer to the 700,000 casualties of the Civil War who fought to end the scourge and the sin of slavery. You know the Constitution almost wasn't signed because of slavery. Did it end in 1865? Unfortunately, it did not. Do you know there was more casualties in the Civil War than all of our other conflicts combined in our entire history? Is this place a perfect country? Nope. Does it seek justice? Yes. Is it along a windy path? Sometimes. But are we on the path? Yes. And as a person, I've traveled to Africa. I'm not saying this boastfully. The Lord has taken me all over the place. We've been to Russia, the former Soviet Union. You couldn't believe it. We've been from Moldova to Hungary to Budapest to Ukraine to Siberia to Moscow and St. Petersburg. I've never been on a Russian set of stairs that two treads are the same size. One's this big, the next one's this big, one's this tall, the next one's that. That's the fruit of communism. Supposed to the same thing. The wildest ride you'll ever do in the world is a Russian elevator. It just kind of, it's only this big around, 14 people are in it. And it's bouncing off the sides because I will take the steps next time. I spent a week in the bush in Africa. In the time I've been up here speaking, 30 children have died from AIDS in Africa. In the short amount of time I've been standing here. I saw orphans, five and six years old, without any clothing, sitting in the ditch, begging for food. The one striking thing that I will never in my life forget about Africa is the smell. And it wasn't in one location, it was everywhere I went. You couldn't drive more than five miles without coming to a fully armed roadblock. And your bags were checked, you were checked, the car was stripped, and you were questioned. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine on the way home tonight you were stopped four times, made to get out of the car, show your papers, searched, opened the trunk? Can you imagine you can't, because you've never lived like that. What, what I'm trying to get at is you don't understand what this place presents to the world. Why do millions of people die attempting to get into this place? Why do we have such a struggle over illegal immigration? Because there's no other place like this on the earth. And the only people that don't understand it are the ones born and raised here. My God, I encourage you to travel to a third world country and spend two weeks there. And you'll find out. You'll find out. What it means to live here. How many times have I said this in 17 years? The poorest people in this country have a refrigerator with access to ice cubes. I know when I'm getting closer to America, because you'll start seeing a a soda or soft drink, and then you see an ice cube. Whoo! 
You're back in the West. We become a spoiled, haughty nation that thinks we deserve something. We don't deserve anything. There's no sense of sacrifice in the country anymore. And you know what that directly relates to then is within ministry, within the kingdom of God. Amen, amen. You think I'm crazy? No. Call a prayer meeting. Two, three people. Feeling guilty yet? You know, if things don't fit into your schedule or what you're doing, eh. The first act you did in the temple when coming unto God was the altar of sacrifice. Sacrifice. President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated before his reconstruction plan could be put in place. Put a southern sympathizer who was his vice president as a president. Half a thing. It took us over 100 years to start again. Had he not prematurely died, I believe things would have been different, but we can't redo history. But Lincoln made a few what I believe to be prophetic statements. I want you to hear this. Two statements I want to read. It's 140 years ago. He said, whatever the vicious portion of our population shall be permitted to gather in bands of hundreds and thousands and burn churches and ravage and rob provision stores, throw printing presses into rivers, shoot editors and hang and burn obnoxious persons at pleasure and with impunity, depending upon it, this government cannot last. That sounds like this week's news. By such things, the feelings of the best citizens will become more or less alienated from it, and thus it will be left without friends or with too few, and those few too weak to make their friendship effectual. That was in the USA Today 20 years ago. Now, I'm going to use the semantic of the headline. This was in 1998, and it said the church was no longer an influence in the society of America. That was 20 years ago. We are well into this. It almost makes Lincoln look like a prophet. That was his address to the Young Man's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois. He did that in 1838. He also said, let us discard all this quibbling about this man and and that other man, this race and that race, and the other race being inferior, and therefore they must be placed in an inferior position. Let us discard all these things and unite as one people throughout this land, and until we shall once more stand up declaring that all men are created equal. That was a speech of the Chicago abolitionists, July 10th, 1858. You know, Yeshua said in the end, in fact, he says this in Luke 21, people will fight each other. In the Greek, that is ethnos versus ethnos. Ethnic conflict. Black against white. Jew against Gentile. America and the body of Messiah has suffered an increased attack of discontentment, criticism, and outright slander. God has not called us to divide or to criticize or to engage in ethnic warfare. He's called us to be echad. And echad doesn't mean one. I, I know we, we, we sing the, the Shema. It says, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, echad. It, in the English it says one, but that's not what it means. When a man and a woman get married, they become, no, they don't. They become echad. It becomes a whole. The man doesn't become the woman. The woman doesn't become the man. It becomes a whole. An egg yolk and an egg white is echad. It says in Genesis 1-5, it was night, it was day, it was yom echad. A complete day. Yet midnight is as far away from noon as east is from the west. We've called to be echad, to be complete, to be whole. God wants to redeem and unify. Satan wants to divide and destroy. We must choose to stand with the Lord, and not society, and not the world. We must begin walking out this. We, we talk, we've talked about it for 17 years. It's time to start doing Ephesians chapter 2. 
It's time to start being the one new man. It's easy to do it in here. Because for the most part, we're all like-minded. It's out there that it's got to stop. 2 Corinthians 5, let's start in verse 18. It says, It is all from God, who through the Messiah has reconciled us to himself, and has given us the work of that reconciliation. What is this? Catalogi in the Greek, which means reconciliation, restoration. It means to favor, to change mutually. But did you get that? To change mutually. We've been trying to close this gap between Jew and Gentile ever since we started as a congregation. It took 1,700 years to, to dig this chasm, this, this divide. We're not going to resolve it in six weeks or in ten years. But there has to be what? A mutual change. I've been to a lot of places. Why don't you just be a Christian Hebrew and stop this nonsense? Because it's been that way for 2,000 years and Israel's not saved. That's not going to work. We can't be Orthodox Jews. That's not going to work. Because the other side, they're not going to take that. It's got to be a, a mutual change. A transformation. What a profound word. And In fact, verse 19 says, which is that God in the Messiah was reconciling mankind to himself. When you come into the kingdom of God, you don't, you're not that person you were 10, 15, 25 years ago. Come on. Really? There's no expectation that you just keep your old nasty lifestyle and God will just accept that. That's, he does one time. And after that, the transformation begins. That's how it is in reconciliation. The transformation has to happen on both sides. And He's entrusted to us the message of what? The message of what? Wait a minute. But what happens in every Sunday in this country? The most segregated day of the week. So you tell me. Come on. We've been entrusted with, listen to this, we've been entrusted with the work and the message. We're not to be exclusively Jewish, exclusively Gentile, exclusively First Nation, exclusively black, exclusively white, exclusively Hispanic, or exclusively Asian. We're not to be exclusive of any group. We're to be inclusive. And what's the rally point? What do we gather around? That Bible on your lap. It's the book we all agree on. For a nation that has no set defined culture, that's the other incredibly unusual thing about America. People today are going to go to St. Patty's Day. In another month, you're going to go to the Greek Fest. We go to the Children's Festival in April. 36 nations are, you get all these cultures, all this food, but it's all from those places. What defines us? What defines our culture? What makes us uniquely American? And I'm going to tell you, it's the Bible sitting on your lap. No other nation or republic except for Israel has its foundations based upon the Word of God. Your identity comes from that book on your lap. It's who you are in Yeshua. Not what your neighbors think. Not what a group thinks. Not what a culture thinks. I don't give a hill of beans what Orthodox Jews think of me. I don't care. I don't care what mainstream Christianity thinks of me. I don't care. And I'm not saying that flippantly. It doesn't matter. When I know who I am in Him, that's all that matters. All this, all this weirded, uh, you know, who am I and what's my purpose in life, that all ends when you start reading the Word of God. Confused about life and where you're at in it? Pick up your Bible and start reading. Confusion will be gone. Ephesians 5.27 says, In order to present the Messianic community in doxos, 
ecclesia. There's a mouthful. And, and doxos is noble, glorious, splendid, or esteemed. Ecclesia is the called out ones, a congregation, a synagogue. It's the body of Messiah, the assembly. To, pre- to present this, and you are truly an endoxos ecclesia. To hell it in the Hebrew. This is it. And to do what? To present this as what? As the bride to Yeshua. I've said this before from this place right here. I'm going to tell you two secrets tonight. Jesus isn't coming back for the glorious church. And Yeshua's not coming back for a glorious Messianic synagogue. (sighs) He's coming back for the... Oh, my. Right from, be a pe- be good people of Berea. Go read it yourself. This is all done so the Messianic community, you could be presented to himself, to Messiah, to be proud of as a bride without spot, wrinkle, or any other thing, but holy without defect. We are to be unified, to be the Echad bride. And the question is, why? Psalms 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Grace and truth attend you. Why justice and truth? Because it is the foundation of the kingdom of heaven itself. How happy, verse 15, are the people who know the joyful shout. They walk in the light. This is or in the Hebrew, right? The illumination, the knowledge of who God is. They walk in that knowledge of the presence of Adonai. We sung it tonight, Panim, in the face of God. They rejoice in your name all day and are lifted up by your righteousness. For you yourself are the strength in which they glory. Our power grows by pleasing you. Remember what I said about the litmus test 12.27 minutes ago? When this controlling spirit and the accuser gets into the body, what departs? The power of God. How does that power grow? By pleasing God. By standing on the righteousness and justice, the foundation of his throne, that grace and truth attends to him. That's the key, Mishmucha. It's repenting and turning back to God. The foundation of it. We were just talking about it this week. So many of our military brothers and sisters are returning from years and years and years of war and combat. In fact, Rabitz and I were talking about her father, who was a well-decorated combat vet from Korea. He struggled with some things in his life because he'd seen things and done things that nobody should ever have to do. Some of you in here have seen things and done things that no one should ever have to see or do. And once that's in your memory and it's an experience, you can't ever get rid of it. You can learn how to deal with it, but you can't get rid of it. It's there forever. But the difference between this becoming a life crippling issue of PTSD and being on assistance the rest of your life, and those who make it through this are those who have a foundation in God. We spent about four years working with a mid-Atlantic Navy chaplain who was the chaplain over all the services from, I don't recall, from Massachusetts, I believe, to the panhandle of Florida. The clergy and the military are severely restricted, and they've been cut. 58% in the last 15 years. So when our young men and women who serve this great republic come home and need help, they can't find it. And so we worked to provide the access to any returning veteran that they could come and talk to us. And we helped them in their struggles. And we talked to three 
veterans who routinely came and, and talked at these classes. And they were completely normal people. But they had been lifelong believers. And when they struggled and had issues in their life, they took them to the throne room. When there was things beyond their understanding, they took it to the throne room. And when you have this foundation, see, this is the difference. When you don't have this foundation, anarchy rules. Everything's okay. You do whatever you think right according to your own eye. But when you stand on the foundation of righteousness and justice and truth, now you've got a bedrock that won't come out in a storm. They can't be washed out from underneath you, no matter what life throws at you. No matter what it is. And in that, our power grows by pleasing Him. What a loaded statement. Feeling a little powerless lately? Huh? Not seeing too many signs and wonders in your day-to-day walk with God? Huh? Maybe we should do a little more sacrificing, a little more service of the message of reconciliation, and begin being about the Father's business and start producing the fruit of the kingdom of God and not the fruit of the world. I wish they were my words. They're not. They're His words. And those words are words of life. Torachai. The teachings of life. Maybe there needs to be a little more sacrifice. Maybe you need to go on a fast of the media. Maybe you need to fast the phone and Facebook. I don't know. You and God know. I don't. But not just specifically congregation Zion's sake. But as a group and as a people, as a society, we've got to regain our focus. We've got to start pressing to the point of what really matters. Father, in Yeshua's name, I, I thank you for every person that's here this evening, Father God. Lord, I, I thank you that I stand shoulder to shoulder with generations upon generations of patriotic Americans. And Father, when I look upon this congregation, I see the bride of Messiah. I see every face and every person that was made in your image, that was beautifully and wonderfully made, that you knew every bone and every sinew when they were knit in secret in their mother's womb. I thank you, Father, that there's no mistake There's no accident in this sanctuary this evening. And you are the God of the supernatural who redeems and restores and sets free. So my prayer to you right now, oh God, tonight, right now, is that the captive would be set free. That there's no longer a generation that's wandering. That no longer is there a generation of orphans, but a bride who knows who they are in you. I thank you for vision and for hope this evening. I thank you for signs and wonders that follow them that believe. As we honor you and we worship you this evening. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. And amen. As we come now, the altars are open. Physical healing, spiritual healing. You've got to take the step and meet God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shabbat Shalom. Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild, Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. What I'd like to do this morning is take something of a close-up look at another furnishing in the Mishkan, and that is the altar of incense, the incense altar. You know, in both traditional Jewish worship and Christian worship, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and 
the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, is very important even today, even almost a couple of thousand years after the temple stood. It endures, the imagery within the Mishkan and the temple endures in, in very real and very prominent ways in both Jewish worship and in Christian worship. So for example, in the weekday morning uh, traditional service within Judaism, we have a whole section that recalls the um, furnishings in the Mishkan in the temple, the sacrifices in the temple, the different types of, of sacrifices. And, and, and the rabbis say, studying these passages it brings us closer in, in our worship because of obviously the, the vital role of the Mishkan and the temple in the worship of ancient Israel. Or think with me about, um, about Christian worship and a, a lot of the imagery of drawing near to God and drawing from the imagery of the Mishkan and, and the temple. Take me into the Holy of Holies, for example. Take me past the outer court into the holy place would, would just be one example where this Mishkan temple imagery endures and reminds us of closeness, intimacy with God and being in God's presence. So when we look at Parashat Titzaveh, we are by no means just looking at something that was important at one time and in one particular place. Both Jewish and Christian worship acknowledge we're talking about something that has enduring significance beyond the construction, beyond the furnishings, and beyond the literal worship that took place there in one day and one time. And so what I'd like to do today, just by taking a little close-up on the altar of incense, and be, maybe a little more on the teaching side um, today, I'd like to see what we can find in terms of principles, in terms of significance for us, in terms of, um, um, in terms of relating in our lives to this one, the, 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 this one particular furnishing in the temple, the altar of incense. How is it conceived? And what, is it, what does it mean? And how is it still relevant to us in our lives today? Avinu Shabbat thank you this morning for the preservation of your Torah. Thank you this morning, Lord, for the authoritative interpretation and understanding that Yeshua, our Messiah, brings to us. Thank you this morning for your Ruach HaKodesh that grants us the capacity not just to understand with our mind, but to really grasp in our spirit, Lord, your, um, your word, and, to, and uh, to apply it in specific and timely and relevant ways in each one of our lives. Lord, I know for so many here, the desire of our heart is to sit at your feet as we read from your Torah and as we seek to mine the riches that it, that it provides for our lives. So give us wisdom and give us understanding and give us um, humble hearts and may you continue to speak and to act in Yeshua's name. Amen. First of all, in 
Shemot, Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, we have instructions for the construction, the construction, and that's point one for those of you who take mental notes or uh, other types of notes. We have the construction of the altar of incense. It says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. That's the instruction for the construction. So, altar of incense, it gives the measurements. A, a, a cubit is, is like a foot and a half, roughly. So, in terms of measurements, we're not talking about something that's very large. It's about three feet tall. It's about a foot and a half in width and a foot and a half in its length. It's built out of wood. The wood is overlaid with pure gold. There's a gold molding around the top, around the perimeter of the altar. There are golden rings on each of the sides. And the purpose of the rings is that so that when the presence of God says to move from a particular place in the wilderness, the, the poles, which are also made of wood and which are overlaid with gold, can be slipped through those rings and the altar of incense itself can be carried easily onto Israel's next station in the wilderness. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward in terms of the construction. And the next slide gives us one person's rendering of what this may have uh, looked like just to give us a little bit of a visual this morning. Uh, you see the horns, which I didn't mention as well, a part of, of the whole and also overlaid, uh, overlaid with, with gold. That's it. Golden altar of incense, that's the construction. Secondly, in verse 6, uh, we're given the way in which this altar of incense is to be situated. So we have first the construction, and now in verse 6, we have its situation. And you shall put in front of the veil or the curtain that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. This is where it's situated. This is where it goes and this is where it's placed. So in the Mishkan, we have a curtain that separates the two parts of the sanctuary itself. One is called the holy place. The other is called the the most holy place or the holy of holies. Of course, outside of that, we have the the outer court of the Mishkan. and, And actually, there's a picture of this too, just to give an idea of what we're talking about as far as uh, visual. So you see in the, the inner part of the sanctuary, you have the holy place, and then you have the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And you see that the altar of incense is, is to be placed 
in front of the curtain and that, that line separating the holy place from the holy of holies is a curtain or is a veil. And beyond that, in the most holy place, you have the ark and the, the mercy seat, which is sort of the, the covering of the, the ark itself. But that little square, uh, off-white uh, part in the middle is the uh, altar of incense. If it were me, I would have placed it sort of much closer to the curtain because I think that that's the sense and in, in other schematics, that's what you get. And I think that's the sense of the passage that it's directly uh, outside of that veil or of that curtain. Um, situation is important because we are talking about a time when worship is to be worshipped in a, in a formal sense of, of, of sacrifice and all of this activities surrounding prescribed worship were to be centralized in the Mishkan. And there are passages in Leviticus, for example, that say there's not to be an altar of incense anywhere else. Don't build one anywhere else. This is where the altar of incense belongs and that, God, and that Israel would incur judgment even for other altars on high places. So the placement or the situation here in the, in the holy place, just outside the veil uh, that separates the holy place from the holy of holies is very important. Thirdly, after, for after construction and situation, we have now the instructions. Well, what is Israel to do? With this altar of incense, how is it to be used? Uh, what what happens there on it? And here uh, we find in our passage four, I think, primary characteristics or four primary instructions. So the first uh, couple we find in verses seven through eight. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps. He shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. And we'll pause there. So the first instruction that, that is noteworthy for us here is regularity, regularity. Aaron, or, that, or the priest that is in office at a particular time, is to burn a fragrant incense on the altar regularly. And specifically, it's to be offered baboker baboker, it says, uh, each and every morning in a regular fashion, and bain ha'aravim, in the evening, which is like the same time when the uh, Pesach lambs were to be slaughtered in Egypt, the evening, twilight, so to speak. And this is the same time when Aaron is to set up the menorah each morning and each, each evening. This is a part of what's called the tamid. Tamid means continual, regular, continual uh, offering. It's a continual part of the daily procedure in the mishkan in the temple. So that's the first of the instructions that it's to be offered uh, in a regular way. Secondly, I find here that um, it, it, there is to be perpetuity, perpetuity. So that means that the priest is to carry this out throughout your de- generations, Lidorotechem, it says, from one generation to the next. Now it's Aaron in office, 
and in the future it's another, and in the future it's another, and of course the Mishkan and the temple uh, for many, 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 many years is the central uh, place of uh, worship for Israel. And so it will continue. It will be perpetual. Thirdly, we find in verse 9 that the instruction calls for selectivity. Selectivity. So look at verse 9. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. So, the incense is to, to be mixed and compounded in a, in a special way, and that's described at the end of this chapter that we won't go into details there. But uh, they're very specific instructions in terms of the uh, measurements, in terms of the contents of the incense. And it is the only thing that is to be offered on the altar. No other ingredient, this altar. No other ingredients, no other measurements, which would be unauthorized. Um, We'll find out in a few weeks how offering something unauthorized went for Aaron's sons, right? Nadav and Avihu, very specific instructions. No burnt offering, no uh, grain offering, no drink offering. Those are for another part of the Mishkan and worship in the temple. Only incense here. The fourth and the final um, primary characteristic, I think, of these instructions is that the instructions call for purity. For purity. So look at verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So one time each year, the altar of incense is to be uh, cleansed or purified with blood on Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement. And it's from this altar that the high priest is to take incense on Yom Kippur, and and it's it's the cloud of incense that covers the mercy seat um, as it's it's cleansed with blood. So it calls for, fourthly, purity. Those are the primary characteristics that we see um, with respect to the altar of incense. Now, These characteristics of regularity, of perpetuity, of selectivity and purity, as well as other factors, open the door for a connection between the altar of incense and prayer and intercession. So these instructions that I've just described, as well as some other factors that I'll mention, open the door, even within the biblical tradition itself, for a connection between the offering of incense and prayer and intercession. So, when we, in Jewish worship, read about the different furnishings in the temple during the morning prayers, this is not something that uh, rabbis and sages much after the biblical period just made up. And when in Christian worship, the imagery of the temple and the Mishkan is mentioned in terms of prayer and in terms of worship and relating to God, this is not something that was just made up 
after the biblical period. And one of the key verses, which you don't have to turn to, but which I'll read a portion of, is in Psalm 141, verse 2, that links this incense offering to prayer and intercession. So Psalm 141, verse 2, which is a psalm of David, the psalmist writes, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. In other words, the, the regularity, the perpetuity, the selectivity, the purity um, of, of my prayers, let it be like the incense that's offered up in the Mishkan, that's offered up in the temple before you. And what happens in uh, Jewish tradition is this incense offering becomes a metaphor for fervent and contrite prayer, primarily based on this verse in Psalm 141. So I want to show you an acronym that the rabbis derived to make this connection between incense and between prayer. And it's sort of a uh, what I would call a playful in an imaginative way in which the rabbis said, yes, contrite and fervent prayer really is like the, the incense offering in the Mishkan in the temple. And, and they connected these words. Katoret is the word, for, is the word for incense. And they said playfully and imaginatively, well, this really describes the type of prayer that God desires. So when we pray, God desires kedushah, holiness. We're to, we're, we're to seek to live righteous lives before the Lord and come before the Lord in our prayers in righteousness, in repentance, in contrition. They said the, the tet of katoret is a reminder of the purity of heart, the sincerity that God desires in prayer, the authenticity in coming before the Lord in prayer. They said that the resh of Katoret is a reminder of rachamim, that God is merciful and God is compassionate. And we're coming before the Lord in holiness and we're coming before the Lord in purity. Then God meets us in God's mercy and God's compassion. And then they said that the tav stands for tikva or hope, that we come in faith, that there's always hope in the God of the universe who cares and who's in relationship uh, with us. And so, so you see in this, in this way, and you see from a traditional Jewish perspective that based, I think, um, in a very significant way on this passage in Psalm 141, this connection is drawn in uh, Jewish tradition between the incense offering and between prayer. Now, when we turn to the Brit Hadashah, what is interesting and important and amazing to me is we see a very similar concept of this connection between the incense offering and prayer. So I'd like to just look at a couple of passages, and you can turn with me if you want to Luke chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 8 to 13, but here... In Luke chapter 1, the context is the um, uh, birth of Yohanan the Immerser, 
And this is the, the way that uh, uh, it's being communicated to John's parents, uh, who John will be, that John will have a particular special calling and preparing the way of the Messiah, etc., etc. And this is a description of how that took place and how that happened. And here's what it says beginning in verse 8. It's referring to Zechariah, uh, John's father. Now, while he, that is Zechariah, was serving as priest before God. So, okay, boom, immediately we're in the context of the temple, right? And we're in the context of priestly service within the temple. Before God, when his division was on duty, so he's right in the midst of his service, his particular rotation there in ministering in the temple, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, so here for, for Zachariah, at this particular time and in this particular rotation, this was his job. He was going to be the one ministering at the, at the altar of, of incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So you see, this, this is the hour of corporate prayer. And we're beginning to see here, too, this interesting connection between Prayer and incense, because other things were happening at, at, at this tamid, at the time of this, you know, looks like morning service and morning offering in the temple. But interestingly enough, Luke calls it the hour of incense. And we take from that that this must have been known or some sort of a, a title, that this prayer time is very closely associated with the offering of incense, even though there are other things, the menorah and things that are happening at that time as well. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elisheva, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yochanan. I read that passage simply to point out that continually we see this connection between the incense offering and between prayer, whether it's the people praying outside or whether it's Zechariah, who it seems to imply is in prayer, because it says your prayers have been, been heard and who's met by this malach, by this messenger of the Lord, here in the context of the altar of incense and the incense offering. Now, there's another passage that we can note where we see something very similar happening again. And that's all the way in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And you can turn there if you want, but don't have to. And I'll just, again, um, read so that we see this same connection that we see in Luke. The context here in Revelation is... (laughs) We have about three hours to talk about the context in Revelation. The, the context here in Revelation, in a nutshell, in a sentence, is, um, is the prayers of the, the, of the sanctified ones through Messiah in the heavenly temple, I would say. And so here's what it says. And another malach angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the sanctified ones on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the sanctified ones rose before God 
from the hand of the angel. Once again, very similar. Prayers of, of God's people, messenger of the Lord, um, asc- altar of incense, ascending before the Lord. There are some other hints, I think, that tip us off or at least demonstrate that there's this connection between the incense and intimacy with the Lord. And here in our passages, here in the Brit Harashah, and according to rabbinic tradition, that's really conceived of as through prayer. But look at some of these other just sort of interesting tidbits that I think strengthen that connection between incense and intimacy with God in prayer. So for example, in our original uh, reading in the passage from the Torah that we read in Exodus chapter 30, verse, in verse 6 of what we read, it says, um, it says, um, you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. So in other words, this, this is, as I understand it, the, the, the furnishing that is in closest proximity to the, the most holy place, to the holy of holies, where you, you do have, of course, the ark and the uh, kapara, the mercy seat. Notice that in both Luke and Revelation, you have an angel of the Lord present at this, you have an angel present at the hour of incense and in the context of prayers. It's a, it says there's, there's something intimate happening here between the those who are mentioned in the context of the incense offering, and God. We have this other sort of curious, but I think interesting passage in the book of um, Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 4, when the author of Hebrews is um, describing the, the temple and making connections to the work of Messiah Yeshua, but interestingly, this is what the author says in, in, in the ESV translation. It's translated like this. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. So now he's talking about the holy of holies. And then he says this. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. Now that's strange at first reading because many people say, well, wait a minute. Does the author of Hebrews not not know the Torah, because the altar of incense is not inside of the Holy of Holies or inside of the most holy place. But especially on an English translation, on first reading, it certainly looks like perhaps the author is, is saying that. I, th- I think what's happening, and I think that what's going on here is that the author is not saying, is not speaking here about physical location of the altar of of incense, and there could have been other words used to communicate that. But when it says having, what what it means is having associated with it, that is the most holy place, the altar of incense. Beyond the second curtain, having associated with it the altar of incense, which according to the Torah stands just outside but it has this deep connection in a different way than the other articles that are in the holy place. Because, for example, on Yom Kippur and in Leviticus chapter 16, it says, take the, the censers and, and you, you bring the incense into the holy of holies. That doesn't happen with the menorah, where a, a, 
a lamp or something is brought into the Holy of Holies. That doesn't happen with the, the lechem panim, you know, the bread of the presence, where you, you bring a piece of bread into the Holy uh, of Holies. But it does happen with the altar of incense, certainly on Yom Kippur, when that goes in and then the cloud and it prepares the way for the high priest to go in and t- uh, once a year into the Holy of Holies. So again, all of these things are telling me that there is this special connection rooted in the Torah that the psalmist picks up on and says, let my prayers be as incense before you. And then that the authors of the Brit Hadashah just show us historically in, in the uh, word to Zechariah about the birth of Yohanan and prayers associated with uh, the, the hour of incense. And then this future picture of the prayers of those who are sanctified rising up along with the incense from the altar in rabbinic tradition saying, yes, there's this deep connection between the incense and between our prayers, union with the Lord through prayers. Talk radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. Shalom once again and welcome to the Wild Branch Ministry. We are a ministry designed and our function is to bring us back to our Hebrew roots. We're based upon Romans chapter 11 in which uh, Paul clearly teaches all those who care to listen that um, we as the wild olive branch have been grafted into a natural tree that began with the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3.15. It has been growing into one body, one spirit since the very beginning. Those of us who are from that wild olive tree take our nutrition, our understanding, our growth, our nurturing from the natural tree, not the other way around. With that in mind, I'd also like to remind you that even though uh, uh, our ministry is designed to bring Torah back to our culture and to teach Hebraic roots, it's not just enough to say we're going to teach Hebraic roots, and it's not just enough to, uh, we feel anyway, uh, to go back to uh, the Sabbath and the feast and, and do things the right way. But also, the, all these teaching series are designed for us to virtually take almost every subject, which, you know, over the years we're going to cover us, uh, every subject that we can, that when the design within these teaching series is anytime we learn about a subject, we go back to the very beginning, um, and, and trace out the subject, whatever that may be, from its very beginnings. And this subject, uh, nonetheless, we're going to talk about, in this series, relationships. We're going to talk about male and female functions and roles and relationships, i.e., primarily between a husband and a wife, but we'll also um, bring that into uh, uh, social settings and so forth, uh, male and female in the working society. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, marriage and divorce, what the scriptures have to say about that, and then we're going to bring in the heart of the Messiah and the heart of a cleansing Messiah in the midst of this as well. And then we're going to um, also talk about personalities, and that ought to be not just an informative trip, but that ought to be a fun trip too, because I have found that many times uh, when there is a, um, a problem between two people or two groups of people, but primarily two people, 
that usually a lot of times you can trace it down to miscommunication and um, and the, our difference, differences simply in our personalities, the way God has designed us. Personalities that have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, the strengths, of course, we focus on and we highlight and we work uh, on these weaknesses. No one's confined to always have to live with these weaknesses. But it's, you'll, you'll be able to see as we get through these personalities that that God has um, placed within his word many times before eschatology, before teaching about the end times, his desire for the unity of the brethren. And so all of us getting along one with another is is essential in these last days. And I'm sure many of you can see that even while I'm speaking to you, there are rifts and, 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 and so forth within the body of the Messiah. Not just between those in the Messianic movement and Christians, and not just between those in the Messianic movement and, and Jews or those uh, that who um, operate in the sphere of, of modern-day Judaism, but also even within the Messianic movement, there are divisions. And, um, and God calls for the unity of the brethren, right before he talks about many verses and, and passages that have to do with the end times. We can all go to a conference, we can go all listen to a teaching, uh, and be a, a very, uh, just absolutely filled with delight and, and, and the glory of God in learning and uh, retaining uh, theology. And theology is important. It's, it's important to understand uh, who the Messiah is. It's important to, to have a grasp of the whole two-house uh, thing, for example. It's, it's good to have a basic fundamental understanding of atonement. And, uh, and, and, and what it means for the Messiah to sacrifice and our salvation. These things are important things. Obviously, observing the feast and the Sabbaths and, and so forth is, is important as well. And, and, and growing in the spirit, these kind of things are important. But unfortunately, many of us have to come home to a bad marriage or to a family that is totally dysfunctional or we're fighting with loved ones over this. This is where it gets very personal. And this is where it begins to hit home because many of the times every many times all these wonderful things that we learn and causes us to grow personally between us and our and our God is deleted, if you will, made obsolete, thrown out the window, whatever term you want to use, by having to deal on an everyday basis with a bad marriage and there, nothing's more personal than that in our lives and a bad marriage can ruin all of that for us because you're not living in an atmosphere that is conducive to uh, fueling this growing in the Messiah. And so therefore, many times we don't grow and we get frustrated. And so we're going to address uh, marriage and family and divorce and personality issues. In other words, expressing the, the fruit of the Spirit that, that show uh, tells us about in Galatians, ex- expressing the fruit of the Spirit uh, in our lives with our um, with our spouses and with family members and with loved ones. And so we're going to do what we've always done. We're going to go back to the beginning and see how God has designed this thing from the beginning. Because I I think that the facts of this is going to be that many times our cultures have dictated to us what what the relationship should be between a husband and a wife. Even what our relationship should be between ourselves and and that or who we consider to, to be the supreme deity. Cultures even dictate how your relationship is going to be expressed in your belief in whatever religious uh, organization you belong to. Uh, our cultures also direct that. Our cultures many times tell us how our relationship should be between uh, us and our children and us and our friends and our bosses and um, acquaint, uh, acquaintances of the opposite sex that you're obviously not married to. Sometimes our cultures dictate what that behavior is going to be like. But we're going to go back to the beginning because, as I've said so many times, the pattern and the model, the paradigm 
for what is good and what is evil. We are given in the beginning, in the garden, in those first three chapters of Genesis. Uh, as you probably may well know, I have a teaching series. It's 32, tape, 32 tapes um, total. It is just on the first three chapters of Bereshit, or Genesis, and which I take every single word. I trace it back in its Hebrew from its beginning, its physical sense, its symbolic sense, and how it's used through the rest of Scripture, showing many of the fundamental doctrines of those who are faithful followers of the Scriptures, where they began, and, and, and how those patterns are set. And uh, as, uh, I can assure you, that if you're growing, and I hope that I and pray that I am growing, of course I know I am growing as well as the rest of you. I have a, uh, a teachable spirit just as much as I hope you have a teachable spirit. We all have people in those uh, who we can learn from. I would imagine that probably in three or four years I could probably do another 32-tape series on the same three chapters and not touch twice the same subject as I did uh, in the first 32 tapes. And that's how awesome these first three chapters are and how much is there. The patterns for what is good is established in the garden and the patterns for what is evil. And, of course, all mankind are going to spring forth from that and they're going to inherit that down through one generation after another. That's why God's so imperative about um, those uh, kind of things being started in a generation because they have a tendency to be handed down from one generation to the next. We have a tendency, uh, because we are humans, to... Uh, pass down what our fathers have taught us. And of course, at the same time, God says, He gives us insight as to where we get a lot of this uh, evil behavior and evil philosophies and theologies and so forth. But He also says at the same time, that does, that does not um, release you from your individual responsibility to say yes or no to those things that you were passed down or were passed down through your generations. It's no coincidence, I believe, since we're going to start with male and female relationships here. That's how we're going to start this series. Um, it's no coincidence to me that the scriptures begin basically with a bride and they end, uh, they begin with the bride and the bridegroom and they end with the same thing. Uh, this is taught to us in uh, the very end of Genesis chapter 1 and the first part of Genesis chapter 2 where it's related through the individual words and meanings in the, uh, of the words in those first two verses of Genesis chapter 2. They give us a picture of what God is going to begin here, which is a bride. And he uses that, uses that in the word finished. In Bereshit chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And it tells us when they were finished. Now this is a pattern that he gives us in the beginning of the seven days. He's going to show us a pattern of the next 7,000 years. I'm sure you've probably been taught this before. It's in the epistle of Barnabas. It was understood by uh, early Jewish sages and so forth. And it's uh, spoken of in uh, rabbinical literature that the day, uh, a day is as a thousand years, as in a thousand years is as a day, and that these days present a picture of the 7,000 years that man is going to have upon this earth. 6,000 being the reign of man, the 7,000th uh, year being the time of rest, or Shabbat. And it says, on the seventh day, God ended his work. Now, that word finished in the Hebrew is kalah. Uh, K-A-L-A-H. That also happens to be the base root word for the word for bride. K-A-L-L-A-H. The same roots form the understanding of the word. And that God begins with a bride. And of course, he's going to introduce the seed of the woman, which will be the bridegroom in Genesis chapter 3.15, even after he's already introduced him as the tree of life in the garden. Of course, we know that that the word of God, which will take upon flesh and be this bridegroom, was given to us in Bereshit chapter 1, verse 1, uh, verified by Yochanan 1, 1, and that this word that became flesh and became our bridegroom was in the beginning with God and was God. And so we have this picture 
from the very beginning of a house being given to us by the very first letter of Bereshit 1-1, the Bet. Not only is the Bet the Hebrew word for house, um, and, and is the letter for that, for, for the, for the Hebrew word house, Bet, but also that, uh, letter is enlarged in the Hebrew, uh, showing us a picture of a house opening to the left, uh, uh, beginning and facing all that are going to be in that house, um, from the very first letter. I know some of this is kind of mystical, but we've covered this in other tapes. Um, and I'm sure you've heard other teachings on this, that this is the believing, a belief of the ancient sages, and this is the reason why these things are done. They're painting a picture of what God's plan is from the beginning, because we know in Yeshua chapter 46, verse 10, and several other places, that God has declared from the beginning the end. And God, so God gives us this picture from the very beginning. And so he starts out with the bride and the bridegroom. And, of course, we know in the very end, in, in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 20 and 21 uh, and 22, we have, uh, once again, the bride coming out of heaven. So we, ha- we have the bridegroom and the bride at the beginning. We have her finished uh, in the end. Again, those two words uh, meaning the same thing. It's also no coincidence that as you read Genesis chapter 2, as this chapter begins to finish, it says in, 20, in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, And Adam said, This is now, speaking of the woman that was taken from the rib of Adam, and we're going to talk about the rib and so forth uh, later on here. It says, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Then it goes on to say, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So the very last things we're told in this chapter, remember, it is man that's put the chapters there, but um, but nonetheless, verse 23 through 25 have this man and, the woman, and this woman being made one now. The very next verses in man's chapter division is chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, particularly verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which Yahweh Elohim had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So immediately, I mean, as far as our text goes, immediately following these two being put together, the picture, the first man and wife, of course, is going to uh, be pictured ultimately in the, the the physical picture is going to be a picture of the heavenly picture of the bride and his bridegroom or the bridegroom and his bride and so immediately we have the attack the attack goes right from the get-go now the reason why i bring this up is because i i hope to show you that that is how satan destroys all of our relationships he begins with the man and the woman he destroys the the husband-wife relationship and uh, removes it or and, and places it into a whole new model or paradigm because he knows that that, in effect, will also destroy the parent-child relationship. And then, of course, the child goes out into the world with that relationship being destroyed, and, he, and it destroys his relationship with other human beings. And that is the pattern that we're given in Scripture. First, first we have the attack upon the man and the woman. And then we have the episode with Cain and Abel, but between the parents and the children, okay, in the family unit in Genesis chapter 4. And then uh, that's followed by uh, the sons of God uh, coming down to the daughters of men. And then we have chaos up in the world. So it, it starts out with Adam and Eve, and then it moves to the children, and then it moves to other relationships within our culture. That's because uh, Hasatan's uh, desire is to destroy uh, mankind, in particular, the seed, Okay, and so we begin with a type of the Messiah 
bride relationship being destroyed in Bereshit chapter 3. Just picture Adam being, just think for a moment, Adam being uh, the first the, a type of the Messiah. And I'm going to prove that later. Uh, but And then you've got Eve in the, in the garden being a type of the bride. Okay, So what does the serpent do? Does he go to the man? Does he go and attack and try to deceive Adam? No. Now, there's nothing to say that Adam had, he went to Eve because Eve knew nothing or Adam, and Adam knew everything. That, that, that's not revealed here. My, the point that it's being made is that in, as far as types go and presenting pictures and patterns of what man is going to pass down from one generation to the next, God shows us that the serpent is going to initiate a conversation because an Adam is going to be designed to be the initiator here with the woman. And so he goes to the bride. Okay, And that's exactly what we see happening for every believer from day one. Every believer is part of this bride that's going to dwell with this bridegroom in a house with a family forever. And he starts by going to her first rather than the bridegroom. And so the attack uh, for every born-again believer who's part of the bride or part of the body is Satan attacks us. Okay, He's our enemy, and we need to understand that. The other picture that's presented here of, of the Messiah being in the, in the heavenlies right now as we speak and the bride being upon the earth is he, he attacks the earthly image. And because, as I said before, the earthly image, if that's understood correctly, that, that is what helps us to understand the spiritual image. And so he goes right for the earthly first. Now, meanwhile, while this is happening, and we're going to probably go back, we're going to go back and forth to this episode several times during these next couple of tapes. Meanwhile, what happens is that Adam sidesteps his function. As soon as the snake appeared, an obedient man, an obedient Adam, an obedient initiator and leader should have gone right to, if I can use these terms, gone right to the snake and said, hey, the heck do you think you're doing? You get away from my wife. He should have chased the snake away right off the bat because we know from the text that he was with her. It's not like Adam went off hunting or somewhere to gather berries or whatever and, and here he, poor Eve is all by herself uh, with the snake. So the picture is that Eve always has her husband with her. And that's the heavenly picture that we're trying to, that the Messiah is trying to paint for us in that we are here on earth, but the Messiah is, I shall be with you always. He is always there. The difference is, of course, is that the last Adam, that is the Messiah, will do what is righteous as opposed to uh, the transgressions of the first Adam. Adam was supposed to be a picture of the Messiah, but he failed. And how did he fail? Well, he was with her, according to verse 6 in chapter 3. She gave to her husband, and the, and the Holy Spirit makes it a point to tell you who was with her, okay? And he did, he did eat. And so we got a reversal there, too. The, the, the picture we're going to see of the man is he's the one that gives. We have a reversal here because of the, the, the treachery and deception of the snake or the serpent and that she's given to the man the other way around. It's already reversed and the ramifications that are going to be put up on the woman are going to be related directly to what appears here in the first six verses of this, of this chapter. So pay attention to that and we'll get into that in more detail later. But the point is that the scriptures, particularly in the Brit Kadashah, say that it was Adam's transgression, but Eve was deceived. Now, we learn in First Timothy that Eve joined him in the transgression. She was in the transgression because the two uh, just became one in uh, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And so she joins him, he joins her, and so they're both in this dilemma. And there's a beautiful picture there, uh, too, also of the Messiah joining his bride in her dilemma. And... Uh, 
uh, by his hanging on the cross, cross and taking upon the sins of the world and so forth. But uh, we'll talk about that kind of theology a little bit later. I want to get back to exactly what took place here. This is why it's called Adam's transgression, because Adam sidestepped what he was supposed to do. Now, a lot of us, a lot of us, when we think of commandments, we have difficulties with things that God says to do. What does this mean? God says, do this. I don't understand how to do that. But there's commandments in, in which God says there are things we are not to do as well. And many times we'll find out that when there is a, when there's a tragedy committed, it may not necessarily be because of something you did, but something you did not do that you were supposed to do. And I believe this is the case of Adam. Take David, for example. Uh, sometimes we think that the reason why his son died uh, is because he had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Well, that is something he did, but it didn't start with something he did. It started with something he didn't do. And the text tells us very clearly that David was a man of war, that God had placed him to fight the enemy. And the text specifically says that he was to go out to war that day. In other words, he was to go out to perform his function, what he was called and designed it to do. And he neglected that function. And he stayed home. See, that's what started it. That's how sin progressed. It starts out with something like that and eventually is brings forth, conceived and brings forth sin, the book of James tells, or book of Yaakov tells us. And so I believe the same thing here of Adam. Adam's responsibility as initiator, which is what we're going to talk about this next couple of tapes, was to lead and, 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 and take care of and to provide safety for her, to save her. He did not do that. So she did what females do naturally, what they are designed to do. And that is she responded. She responded. Now, the things didn't turn out the way they did because Adam's the smart guy and he is a moron. Things turned out the way they did because the pattern that God is trying to show us is that the functions or roles were reversed or Adam's neglected his role. And so he is the one who sinned. And so that caused Eve to be deceived. There is no um, instructions here from God whatsoever indicating that it's because the woman can't handle these things. That's not the point. And, and that the man can. The point is, is that this is how things get started. This is the pattern for how sin gets involved in our lives and how our families and our marriages and our relationships get all tangled up is because of the things that took place here right in the garden. So Adam becomes uh, the responsible for the transgression because he sidesteps his, sidesteps his responsibility and his function as initiator. You also have to remember that from the beginning, we have an original image, which we're going to talk about. The original image of man and woman is male and female. We are told in Better Sheet chapter 1, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that is that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now what's important to see is that the, the image that's being presented here has no body. I do not agree with many people who insist that Genesis chapter 2 is only a retelling of chapter 1. No. I believe in context, he has, we are presented the situation and the process just as it evolved. And that is beginning with a, a, a perfect uh, earth. God, God's works are perfect, according to Deuteronomy chapter 32. He creates things perfectly. Then Hasatan falls and creates chaos because that's what, all, that's what always happens when sin enters into the system. It's chaos, confusion. 
and um, and corruptness is what takes place when sin enters the scene. So God is going to do something with the creation that's going to be a pattern for man, the humans as well. And that is, he creates imperfect, there's a fall, but he restores. And so he restores um, the earth after he's created it, bara, in verse 1. Then you don't have the word create show up until verse 21. 20 more verses, and he does not do any more creating. Why? He already created everything he needs in Bereshit 1.1. Now, because of the fall, because of tohu and vavohu, because of chaos, corruption, he is going to restore it. And the first thing he does to restore the earth and the creation is the first thing that he does with man, because that's the pattern. He, The Spirit of God, the regenerative act takes place with the with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God moves because the Spirit is the demonstrative, active presence of God. The Spirit moves upon the face of the earth and then there is light comes into the world. Remember who said he was the light of the world? Light comes into the world. Uh, then there is a separation uh, of, of, um, of, of darkness good and, and, and light. Then there's a separation of the waters uh, and the earth comes up out of the sea. You have the picture of baptism. You have the very first thing that this re- restored um, uh, born again earth, if you will, does is produce fruit, vegetation. Okay, And then what does it do? Not only does it produce fruit, but another another picture of producing fruit is the, the stars and the moon and the planets placed in the heavens to speak of the glorious good news of God. This is the picture that he has placed in his creation, and he's going to do that with man. And that's why so many things that are related to man in the scripture are also related to the earth or the ground, and which is where, of course, man comes from. And they have destinies that are the same. Okay, of course, the ground is obedient by nature. Man gets to choose. But then you have man created perfect. Then he falls and then God is going to restore him, just like he did in the pattern given with the uh, with the heavens and the earth at the beginning. And so this is the uh, the order that we have. Man is first created in the image of God. God does not have a body. So Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 does not involve, involve any bodies. That doesn't happen until after the whole Six days or seven days are completed. Actually, technically, the seventh day is never called good, meaning it's never complete because man broken. And so uh, because of the fall of man, the whole seven days starts all over again. Six days. Remember, a thousand years, days, a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. That's that's the period of time that man has upon the earth. And then the Sabbath won't be good until its ultimate completion in the seventh millennium. And so we have this picture just in the order that's given to us that man begins in the image of God, his spirit, just like God is. Then after the seven days, we're told that he takes the dust of the ground, which was created when? Genesis 1.1, not in the image of God. Genesis 1.1 says nothing about the heavens and the earth being in the image of God. This is where man's body comes from. And it's not a retelling of 26 and 27. Or rather, in 26 and 27, we have God creating, bara, something that he has not already created in the ground. See, God doesn't need to create things that he created of the heavens and the earth. He doesn't need to create them again. Instead, he forms them. He asa, he makes them. He lets them be. He brings them forth. And so man's body comes from the dust of the earth. It's already been created. It doesn't need to be created again. But what does need to be created? That which is not in existence yet. And that is what we call Adam, mankind. God created mankind in his image because all mankind, male and female, is going to come forth from what he created in the beginning, which was just one, Adam. And so from the beginning, we have this 
uh, uh, image that is, we are told, is male and female in the one Adam. Now, we are told from this original image that they are going to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing. They'll both united in this one Adam. They're not, in other words, they're not separated yet. They're going to have dominion, uh, Vayiradu. Let them rule, it says. Let them, Vayiradu, rule together. Desire, the desire of God from the very beginning was that male and female rule together. And of course, in order to accomplish this, he's going to, he's going to separate them in order that they may exist in the physical world and have relationships and so forth. And then he's going to put them back together. And it said that that happens to be in the third person plural masculine just of mood. That's what we call it in the, in the Hebrew grammar here. And what that simply means is just when something's in the just of mood, it means it's a it's a soft command. It's not a hard command like thou shalt not kill. Okay. And when something's in the just of mood, it basically means I I pray thee that you do such and such and and, and so forth. And so it's a it's a soft command. And it expresses a desire, okay? And that is that they rule together. Now, their functions, as I said, from the beginning are placed as male and female. So he uses the Hebrew words zakar and nekabah to express the way they began. And the way they began was male and female, not heterosexual and homosexual. You probably heard me talk about this before. Uh, the argument... Uh, in our culture, in our society right now, science on one hand saying, oh, now we have proof that, that, uh, homosexuals can't help be homosexuals because they're born that way. And of course we have the Christian responses, uh, no, God designed males, uh, to be heterosexual, I mean, men and women to be heterosexual because that's the design of nature and so on and so forth. But there, but man was not designed to be heterosexual or homosexual. And this is important to grasp. Man is designed from the beginning to be male, zakar, and female. And then later, God is going to give the rules, we call that Torah, for male and rules for female. Now, what does that mean? That means if we're designed male and female, there are rules governing the male and rules governing the female. That means that you can choose not to obey the rules. And that's why it's sin, my friends. It's sin because they chose not to obey the rules of hetero, of being a heterosexual, if you will, or being a, excuse me, being a, a male or female. And they chose to do it their way. And so that's why it's called sin. It's not called sin because they were born that way, or if they're born heterosexual, then how can they be homosexual if they're born that way? It's, it's a silly comment. Fact is, we all choose. Male in the, in the Hebrew is zakar. Um, it comes from the Hebrew, that's the Hebrew root of it, zakar. It's the same root word. Its verbal root means to remember. A memorial. Now one might ask, how is it that the same Hebrew word is used for male as it is for to remember? And God remembered Rachel. And, and the thief saying, remember me when thou art in paradise. Because in the Hebrew, the verbal root or the etymological root of the words Remember, a memorial is that which stands or acts in behalf of something. A memorial means to stand or act in behalf of something. Now, my friends, that is part of the very nature of the design of the male in a male-female relationship. He is to stand and act in behalf of the marriage or the woman or even himself. He is the one who um, initiates, and I'm going to use... 
two words primarily throughout the rest of this the first two tapes, and that is the male is the initiator and the female is the responder. There are other words that you can use uh, that, that may be befitting at times. Uh, he's the one that starts. She's the one that finishes. Uh, however you want to see it, I have chosen initiator and responder. And I'm going to show you that those two responsibilities are absolutely equal. And many times you'll find out that the responder is more important than the initiator. Okay, the woman is what I'm saying, or the female. The word nekaba in the Hebrew uh, means literally to perforate something. Okay, now pull yourself up the floor laughing, I guess. Okay, but <laughs> I'm giving you the literal meaning of what these things mean. Female literally means to perforate, to to be an opening, to be pierced, uh, to receive. That's why. We are referring to her as the responder. Now, again, I'm insisting that these are God-ordained from the beginning functions that God has given male and female. Man to stand and act in behalf of a woman to receive or to respond. Okay, And when the initiator initiates and the woman responds uh, according to that initiative act, that is when we have unity and goodness and peace. And both are equally needed. These functions are created before the bodies are formed. So it's already in who we really are. It's not something that God just placed in the physical, as if to the physical uh, man in, in, in his physicalness or physicality is uh, only initiates and responds when it comes to sex, you know, functions of the body. That's not true. These things are placed in the very nature of who male and female are from the very beginning. We're also told in this that he said it is not good... I'm in, in verse 18 now of chapter 2. It says, It is not good uh, being of the man, I'm reading it literally, uh, alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That's basically what it says in the Hebrew. It's, it's brought over into the English. And said, Yahweh Elohim, it is not good. In other words, it's not complete. The, the, the whole concept of tob in the Hebrew is to complete something. When something is completed and done the way God wants it, he says, it is good. And he called that day Good. It's complete. That's exactly what I wanted to do. And again, that's why the seventh day, as far as the pattern of, of, of mankind's uh, time here on earth is concerned, uh, the seventh day is not declared to be good, not because it isn't good in our understanding of it in our culture, but because it's not complete. Why? Because in that seventh day, man sinned and God began the whole seven day over again and restored man. And placed him in 6,000 years upon the earth, a thousand year reign. Uh, excuse me, a millennial reign by the Messiah on the seventh day. So the bride will be complete now on the, in the seventh millennium. That's the picture that's shown, uh, in his work being finished on that day. So it says it is not good being of the man alone. Notice that it did not say that it's not good for the man to be alone. Now notice the subtle difference here. And God said it is not good that man should be alone. Okay? He didn't say it's not good for the man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. I think what God is saying there, it is not good for anything. It's not good for the creation. It's not good for nature. It's not good for relationships. It's not good for that man either. It's not even good for the whole kingdom for man to be alone. It's not complete. It's not what God designed it to be until there is the responder. Okay, And he says, I will make him... A and Hazar, Hazar, a helper, and a Konegdo, Konegdo, 
uh, translated fit for him. Now, the first word there is a chazar, um, is an ayin, a zayin, and a resh. An ayin, a zayin, and a resh. Literally means, azar is, a re- of course, a responsive act. It literally means to uh, reduce responsibility of someone, to reduce a burden, uh, to help, which is primarily what it's translated as, and it literally in its etymological base means to hold something together. That's why its cognate word, hazar, which is an aleph, zion, and a resh, means it's translated in the scripture says to hold things together, to keep things together. So this, this helpmate for him is there, uh, to hold all things together. And, um, it, of course, Helping is a responsive act. To help someone is not an initiative act. It is a responsive act for the man. And, of course, obviously, as he goes to the animals, he can see that the animals are not going to work physically, obviously, because of, you know, genetics and so forth. And um, But the animals are not going to be able to respond to Adam's initiative acts. They're not going to be able to hold things together. They're not going to be able to help him. Only someone from him can really respond appropriately to him. Now listen carefully to that. Only someone from the first Adam can appropriately respond to that same Adam. Because that is true of the spiritual. Again, that's why God has made the physical to be pictures of the spiritual. That only someone from the last Adam, part of the last Adam, being part of his body, can appropriately respond to the initiative acts of the last Adam as well. Woman is not formed to serve the man, but to hold things together as part of the total responsibility of mankind. Only together are they complete and serve their functions as Adam, or mankind. Now the other word there is translated in your Bibles as fit for him, is neged, N-E-G-E-D, neged. And it means, it's translated many times as the opposite of or opposing part, but not in the way you think. It's, it has, it's translated two basic ways in the scriptures. An opposing part, on, as on the other side of, and to speak up and to tell. Neged is the root of a verse I quoted earlier that you might not attach this to, and that's what's so wonderful about going through the words of God is to see these relationships that God has placed within these words to help you understand each word better. In the beginning, I said that Yeshua said that that God has declared from the beginning the end. That word declared, magid, the root of that is neged, to declare or speak forth or tell of something. And it is used uh, several times in the scriptures to give you an idea that opposite, not meaning of not meaning our cultural understanding of something that's the opposite of, diametrically opposed to. Okay, that's a, that's the understanding that we get from our culture. But let's don't let our culture decide what biblical words mean. In the scripture, to give you several examples, is another one in Better Sheet 21. Some of this, by the way, is on our is on my Genesis series, but I probably go into much more detail there. 21:16. Just to give you an idea of how this word, what what this word means, so you can get a better idea of how the woman relates to the man. In the, in the husband, particularly the husband-wife relationship. Okay, it says in verse sixteen, chapter twenty-one of Better Sheet, and she went and sat down apart from him a good way, as it were a bowshot. For she said, "Let me not see the death of the child." And she sat uh, across from him and lifted up her voice and wept. So the idea is that she is facing him and speaking. 
declaring, facing him. Now, what, what do we, why would that be associated with speaking and telling? Because if you go to a relationship and sit down where he's sitting down and facing where he's facing in his position, which is going to be the part of the ramifications of woman's uh, uh, being part of the transgression, by the way, we'll talk about later, is that you cannot get a full picture, you cannot communicate, you cannot relate to one another when she sits down right where you're sitting down. But rather she goes around and faces him and begins to speak forth and expound so they get the full picture as they face each other. That's the picture that God's trying to draw of part of the idea of the woman's relationship or the female's relationship with the male. So the background of this word um, that's used for fit for him is in context with uh, speaking up or telling or speaking forth. Because only with um, two people sitting across from each other, facing each other, and sharing and speaking forth and declaring, uh, do you have the full expression of the marriage relationship. And so one of the purposes, of course, for example, of an elder in a church, and we're going to talk about this a little later too, but elders in the church are, are generally men. Um, but... One of the reasons for that is because, or at least from God's point of view, the idea of a male spokesman, because God expects uh, those who are old enough to be elders to be married. That's why I say the husband of one wife, the elders of bishops, they're expected to be married. Now, why do you think that is? Because an elder's ability to be able to make decisions and judgments within a congregation is supposed to be based upon his full knowledge of the scriptures and life. And he cannot do that without his wife. Any any idea or, or, or knowledge or opinions that he has about any of those kind of subjects to deal with in a congregation must be in tandem with his his wife's life experiences as well. And when he speaks, he speaks for both of them. He is expressing their knowledge, their opinion. That's the purpose of a marriage when it comes to two people. Not just producing kids, but being one, being a whole person. And um, for example, just to give you another example of this, in, in Mismore 97, verse 6, you have the basis for the helpmate fit for Adam used in this word. It says, the heavens naged, or naged declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory declaring his righteousness it's only the fact that God is both male and female that he's able to declare the fullness of anything my friends okay now we've gone through some of their functions that are designed in the initial words that are given to describe Mankind made up of male and female. We see that God's desire is that they rule together, but they can only appropriately rule together. If you got a king sitting on a throne, the only way he's going to appropriately rule is because of that helper that is fit for him. Okay, that speaks forth and holds things together. That is one of her purposes. Now, the other thing I want to go through uh, at the beginning of all this is is how even through the language itself, you'll see many words used that are given in the male or female gender. Now, let me stop a minute and give a, just a really short Hebrew lesson. In the Hebrew, you only have the choice between male and female as far as gender goes. And there are many words. So, so in other words, when you come to a noun or a verb, uh, you're going to either have to assign a, a, a female or a male gender. And so if you have something in the Hebrew, because in the Hebrew, the uh, basic word 
the, the stem of the word in which all words are formed from is called the kal stem, Q-A-L. Kal is, is the Hebrew word for uh, easy, simple. The simplest form of a word, and I'm not saying this, maybe this speaks of, of men in general too, I don't know, but the simplest, <laughs> easiest form of the word is always in, naturally, the male gender. And so when you want to build a word, Hebrew words, you start out with that kind of stem, and then you build and add suffixes and prefixes on it, and you have to change some of the vowels and so forth in, in order to, uh, to make it uh, agree uh, grammatically. And so if you want, so in other words, if you wanted to leave, if some, you wanted something to be male, you just left it, okay, in that stem. You don't have to do anything to it to, for it to be male. It's already in the male gender, okay? Now, if you want to make something female, you specifically have to go in and add certain suffixes and so forth in order to make it female. You have to do something. You have to purposely do something. However, it's also true that in the Hebrew language, if something is uh, male or it could be both, it'll be also placed in the masculine. Okay. In other words, it'll just be simply left alone. So the only thing that tells you whether it's male, specifically speaking of male, or it could be Something general like there were people there. Okay. Well, if you're going to say there were people there, uh, the uh, Hebrew does not have a neuter gender in which you which you conclude that well it was a mixture of male and female. If you're going to say people and there's a mixture, you just leave it in the masculine. It's only context that's going to tell you whether it is speaking of uh, strictly males or the general public. And so if if the context doesn't, I'm just trying to tell you how to help to read the Hebrew is if it doesn't specifically say that it's speaking of males, so for instance, it me, uh, mentions priest or something, or, or men going to war or something, if it doesn't say that, then you can generally conclude that it is speaking of the general populace. Uh, so when you talk about, uh, and the children of Israel left Egypt, well, if there's nothing that makes it specifically males, then all of the children left Egypt. Now, to look up the word children and see that it's in the masculine gender does not mean only males left. But if you really meant only females, then you would have to go in and specifically add suffixes onto the word to make it female. I hope that's clear as, as mud to many of you. The reason I say this is because there are many commands given by God to the children of Israel that religious institutions have decided that that's male only because the word children is in the masculine. Well, you don't have a choice. okay? If the context does not specifically relate to males, then it could be, and probably always is, talking to all the children of Israel. So, for instance, my friends, tzitzit is something that's commanded by God to all the children of Israel. Of course, it's in the masculine gender, because tzitzit's not just for females. See, so you have to choose male or female. Again, I hope that makes sense. But there are some words that are already, without having to add anything to them, already in the female gender. And there are some words, of course, that are in the in the in the masculine. But it's the ones that are specifically made female that are all the interesting words. For instance, in the beginning, you have uh, God uh, taking the breathing into the uh, man uh, his breath and making him a living soul. He forms man from the dust of the ground. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because you're going to see that in the beginning, the words that have that have to do with someone initiating an act are in the masculine. And of course, naturally. If you leave them alone, they're in the masculine anyway. Did I not say that? Now, but there are other words that imply very clearly responses that are specifically put in the female gender and are in the female gender. Okay, For instance, in the beginning, the idea of forming, and, and Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth, is in the masculine. 
When he breathes, it is also in the masculine. But that which he breathed, his breath, is now in the feminine gender. His breath, because that's going to relate to his spirit, okay, which is also generally in the female gender, okay? Feminine breath. Also, life, which is the result of him breathing, if you will, once again, the response of him breathing into Adam is life, feminine gender. The soul, he, he, he became, uh, even though man is in, is in the masculine, because you don't have a choice since it's, remember, man is in the masculine, not because Adam is only masculine, we know he's both male and female. See, see my point? I hope that makes sense. Even though man is in a ma- masculine, he became a living, feminine, soul, feminine. The soul of man, the very passion and, 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 and seat of soul and relationship is to be found in the feminine gender. And I'm going to suggest to you the same with the Messiah's body. His, quote, uh, kahal, or his church, his assembly, his edut, which is also in the feminine, by the way. Um, the very soul of that is in the feminine gender, and the life that that body has is also in the feminine gender. And we need to begin to see our, our wives and those who are uh, female within the kahal, within the church, that way as well, and not try to quench the life and soul of the body of the Messiah. Now, it's also true that... Um, Again, that some words are nat- some words are naturally in the feminine. They're just that way naturally. You don't have to add anything to them. Uh, obviously, words such as M, mother, okay, bot, daughter, um, Raquel. <laughs> Actually, where we get the word Rachel from, which is basically a, a female lamb, a you. Okay, Th- those words are in the feminine naturally. Words that come in pairs are feminine. Now, don't be laughing at that either. <laughs> But words that come in twos or pairs, like hands, feet, eyes, ears, are all in the feminine gender. Even the singular hand, of course, is also in the feminine gender because that's because the head, of course, is in the masculine, rush, and that's why the man is the head of the relationship, but the head gives instructions to the hand which does the work. Feminine gender. You have the feet, the eyes, the ears. These are all things that that uh, describe various parts of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay, But then there are aspects of the body that are in the masculine, naturally, gender. And of course, remember, that can be both as well. But there are things that come in ones. The nose, the back, the head, and the mouth. The nose, the back, the head, and the mouth. That's just to give you four examples of, of that which is in the body uh, from the beginning, which are in the masculine gender. Now, moving on, let's talk about the the idea that Zakar, he who stands or speaks in behalf of something, being the initiator of the husband and wife or male and female relationships, since that's mostly what we're dealing with here is is the husband and wife male and female relationships. Adam, the reason how do I know that that man is the initiator? I guess that would be the logical question. Well, where does it say man is the originator? Uh, initiator. Well, I'm using that term, but we know from the testimony of the Brit Kadashah, for example, and I'm going to relate the Old Testament being the masculine and the New Testament being the feminine gender, and only both of those make up the whole Bible. We'll talk about that a little later. But the Brit Kadashah reveals to us that Adam was a type of the Messiah. 
that the first that there's a first Adam and a last Adam. And the first Adam was a type of the coming Messiah. Of course, he failed, and the Messiah is going to do, complete, and fulfill all those things that the first Adam failed to do. But nonetheless, that is the way the first Adam was designed, and we know that from several places. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, for example. Many of you are probably familiar with um, with these verses. We read in verse 22, it says, For as an Adam... All die, even so in Messiah shall all be made alive. So we have this constant contrast uh, here and in many other places of Adam, uh, the first man, with the Messiah, okay, the righteous man, the one who fulfilled it all. In verses 45 through 47 in that same chapter, it says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a life-giving spirit. We're st- they're still all in the feminine gender there, okay? However, that which uh, was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. That's the reason why, again, the Messiah said, "How can I tell you earth? How can I tell you heavenly things if you will not trust the earthly things?" Okay, okay. So God places in our world the natural things; those are the things that we see first, and they speak of the spiritual. It says the first man is of earth, earthly, and the second man is Adonai from heaven, or Yahweh in the flesh, come to dwell among us, okay, made um, like unto man. And so, uh, that combined with Romans chapter 5, turn to Romans chapter 5, it says, starting in verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all man has sinned. Then go down to verse uh, 17. It says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in the life by one, Yeshua the Messiah. The constant contrast of these types. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, free gift came upon all men to justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, that is the Messiah Yeshua, shall many be made righteous. Okay. And of course, Ephesians chapter 5, we could go through many of these, but I think you get the point. That we are told specifically in relating uh, Messiah to his body. And that relationship is seen in the man or the husband and the wife. And we know the first one, of course, was that we all come from, which we're supposed to pattern after, or, uh, from is Adam and Chava, her Hebrew name, Chava. It says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as, un- as unto Adonai. And of course, that's where most uh, preachers stop. But for the husband is the head of the wife, even as, even as Messiah is the head of the church, or is, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto the Messiah, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. And and it says, husbands love your wives, even as Messiah loved um, his uh, kahal or his church and gave himself for it. Okay, so we have this constant comparison. Now, why that still doesn't mean that the male initiates. Well, you're going to see that very clearly as we go through this. But one of the best places to start, of course, is the first epistle of Yochanan in chapter 4, verses, verses 19. Chapter 4, verses 19, which says simply, We loved him, that is the feminine, the body, the bride, because he loved us. And so, again, the Messiah comes to fulfill what Adam failed to do. And so we reach, he reached out to us, and so we respond by loving him back. And this is the very nature of God all throughout the scriptures. 
Adam, of course, is uh, uh, first formed. We're told in First Timothy two thirteen, the man was formed first. The whole idea of being first is being the prototype, being the initiator uh, of all the others. We know from um, John three sixteen, the famous John three sixteen, God so loved the world that He gave. He reached out. We know from many scriptures in the Tanakh where God reaches out to his people with an outstretched arm to rebellious people. He initiates it. He starts it. And we receive. We know according to Bereshit chapter 24, uh, according to a marriage contract, that marriage is initiated by the man. We're probably going to read that later. Uh, in um, the um, servant of Avraham being sent to find a bride uh, for Isaac, the man searches, reaches out first. And of course, she responded by saying, I will go with you. Okay? And that begins the whole, pun intended, an, an initial act that gives us our wedding ceremonies. Um, he reaches out. He asks her hand in marriage. She responds. In Zechariah 7.13, I think, I believe in my heart that this is related uh, to the initiator, responder idea through man, male and female, also placed within the nature of the Messiah and his body. In Zechariah 7.13 it says, Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried, that is speaking of God, and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, saith Yahweh Sevaot, the Lord of hosts. So he cries out, and they won't listen okay, to him. So when they cry out to him, he won't listen to them either. But he does the initial act of reaching out to mankind. There are, as I said earlier, two covenants in the scripture. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which we assign to the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is technically not true. But nonetheless, for the sake of argument, when the disciples went out to teach the word of God and to preach it, they preached always from the Tanakh, the Old Testament. For it is the Old Testament that they referred to to confirm truth. Okay, so they went back to the initiator, the, the Old Testament being that which initiates. And the Brit Kadashah responds. So the first covenant initiates truth. The Brit Kadashah responds to that truth. But only when they are one do you get the full picture of what God is trying to express. Now, my own personal opinion is that if there seems to be something that is at odds uh, in the Brit Kadashah that is also in the Tanakh, that uh, I remain with the initial uh, testament uh, or covenant and and then try to understand what is written in the Brit Kadashah rather than the other way around. Christianity has traditionally um, gotten their doctrines and understanding of things by reading the New Testament. If there's something they can find in the Old Testament that matches it, they'll highlight that. Otherwise, they basically ignore it. You're ignoring the initiator, so you're not getting the full picture. You see, it is the Messiah, being the last Adam, who is the one who gives. These are initiative acts by the Messiah. We said earlier that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it is the Messiah that gives. He also initiates the love. Remember, we love him because he first loved us. So that needs to be drawn into your marriage relationships as well, that the male is to initiate all expressions of love. I believe all expressions of love. And that includes the physical act as well. He initiates uh, the love in the family. And the woman responds by submitting. Okay, and that's we're going to talk about that in more detail as we go as well. 
it is the Messiah or the male in this relationship that does the serving. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve, the Messiah said. And of course, serving means supplying needs. He supplies the needs of his bride. Of his bride. That's how he serves. And of course, the initiator only initiates according to her needs. Oh, you may be initiating things at home, but you may doing, you may be leading in things that she doesn't want or she doesn't need. So you have to initiate these things based upon your bride's needs. And then, and only then, will she respond corporately, uh, appropriately because she is designed to. It is the initiator that cleanses in the home. I believe it is the male, the husband, who's supposed to be the, the cleansing authority for his, for his family, for his wife and for his children, uh, in being washed, okay, and freed from things that they have done wrong. The man needs to initiate that and not wait for the other two to come to him. Uh, this is something we all struggle with as men, but first you have to know that you need to do that, and then you have to apply it, of course, and application sometimes is a little slower than the knowledge. And uh, I will admit to that. But nonetheless, that does not negate the truth. And the truth is that when it comes to cleansing your family of things that are unrighteous, the man needs to, to leave first. And I'm going to give you a few examples of that from the Tanakh here in a few minutes. When it comes to blessings in the home, the man initiates the blessings. He reaches out the hands to the wife and to the children to bless them. And they respond by being blessed. If nothing else, by what you just did, by reaching your hand out. If nothing else happens. Forgiveness needs to be done by the initiator. The whole act of forgiveness, when there's something wrong within the relationship, the man needs to reach out first. Is the Messiah who blessed us? Is the Messiah who forgave us our sins? And that started the process of responding by obeying him. Can you not see that? We didn't start out by obeying him first and then he forgave us. He forgave us and we being the body or the bride responded to that forgiveness by obeying him. That is the background of of wives submitting to their husbands uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, which we're going to talk about in, in more detail. It is the initiator or the male, the husband, who saves and rescues and provides safety and protection for the family. He initiates that. Of course, it's the Messiah who died for us, rescued us, saved us from our sins, protects us. I will be with you always. Okay? And he's always there to help us and protect us. In dealing with the devil, it is the male that deals with issues concerning attacks, whether they be demonic or whether they be uh, just, you know, a lousy next door neighbor, okay, whether it be an, an overambitious paper boy or something, whoever it is, the male is to deal with that. Well, we know that also from for first Yochanan. Chapter 3, verse 8, where it says that he that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God, the male, the last Adam, presented by the type of the first Adam, was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, is that not in answer or to or in response, pun intended, to what Adam failed to do in the garden? That he failed to destroy the works of the serpent? And so the Messiah comes to complete that or to fulfill that. He's the one that deals with it. I used to joke when I've done these personality seminars before. I've, I've uh, talked about um, the husband and wife laying in bed at night, and there's a you know a strange noise outside. Noise outside, or the trash cans are all dumped over, and you hear a racket outside. Uh, and, and, and the man uh, not rolling over and say, "Honey, would you take care of that?" 
You know, the man gets up out of the bed and he goes down there and he takes care of what needs to be taken care of in order to provide comfort and safety for his family. And the man initiates that. Man, according to the scriptures, in the relationship, is the initiator of what is righteous. He is the initiator. Not only is the initiator, but he is the one who seeks after righteousness. Now, you know that when you read the Tanakh, a lot of times uh, we, we're going to talk about some of these subjects and some of the things, the commands that God gives the women, and some of these things are hard to understand. Uh, some of the laws concerning Nidah and so forth seem to be hard to understand. It seems like there's a lot of burden placed on the women. But in actuality, what we've done is we've taken a handful of examples and we've just really focused on those. And, but when you read the whole of the commands given in Scripture uh, for male and female, dominantly the responsibility lies on the male. Uh, in Vayikra chapter 20, for example, I'm just going to take a short section here. Um, starting with verse 10, it says, And the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, verse 11, And the man who lies with his father's wife, 12, And if a man lie with his daughter-in-law, verse 13, And if a man also lie with mankind, verse 14, And if a man take a wife and her mother, verse 15, And if a man lie with a beast, he shall surely be 16, And if a woman approaches unto any beast, Now, they stick a woman in there for one verse, And then 17, here we go again, And if a man shall take a sister, 18, And if a man shall lie with a woman, Verse 20, and if a man shall lie with his uncle's wife, 21, and if a man shall take his brother's wife, and it goes on and on and on. Okay, And the Lord said unto Moses, speaking to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and saying to them, There shall be none defile for the dead. And verse 4, he shall not defile himself among his people. Verse 5, he shall not make baldness upon his head, so forth. And then, it says in verse 6, they shall be holy unto their God, and not profane the name of their God. Then in verse 7, and they, that is the priests, the males here, shall not take a wife who is a harlot or profane. Now, the reason I brought these up is because altogether, when you add all this up together, it is the man who's commanded uh, in all these verses dealing with relationships with other people that you have, particularly sexual and a physical nature. But the point that's being made here is if the man, I'm going to take the last one. If the man is commanded to take a wife and to take a wife who is a virgin, to take a wife who is not a harlot or profane, if the man seeks that kind of righteousness based upon the function of the woman as she's designed by God, how will the woman respond? I'll tell you how she'll respond. If the man, remember he's the initiator, seeks after that kind of woman, she will be that kind of woman. She will respond naturally to how he reaches out. If he reaches out seeking for righteousness, then the woman will respond by being righteous. But if the man begins to lower or drop his standards for righteousness, then how do you think the woman will respond? Well, eventually they will respond to what he is seeking after. That's why these things are so fundamental and why so much rests upon the man because so much rested upon the Messiah. And he is fulfilling what Adam, the first Adam, should have done. The model or the paradigm for all relationships begin, as I said earlier, with the proper relationship between the husband and wife. Because if the husband and wife are in a proper relationship where he's initiating and she's responding, and he's initiating godly, okay, and she's responding in a godly way, then all other relationships will fall in line with that. I've heard so many times people say, well, the most important thing in our marriage is the kids. It better not be. That better not be the most important aspect of your family. 
the most important relationship better be the very first one that was given. Because God holds you accountable for living up to the to the first thing that he gave you. Sometimes he expresses it by saying, you know, how can I trust you in the greater things if you will not do the lesser things? Okay, we're not making marriage lesser, but the point is, God's first ministry given in the scriptures was to be fruitful and mer- uh, multiply, and he put the man and woman together, and then he gave them commandments. And if that relationship is right, then I guarantee you, your relationship with your children will be right. And your children will go out into the world, into the school, and into the communities and relationship with other people. And that will be uh, proper and godly as well. But if the husband-wife relationship is is torn apart, then it will affect the kids and it will affect their relationships with other people in the community too. And of course, the same is true, obviously, with a, a, a divorce. The same thing happens in a divorce. That's why so many times we have to balance, you know. Living in a household where we're constantly at odds with each other, how does that affect the kids as opposed to uh, not being together in the home at all? Okay, And I cover some of those things on the um, divorce and remarriage uh, tape as well. But these uh, eventually uh, form the foundation for all our relationships with our loved ones and, and, and neighbors as well. As I said earlier, what does the enemy do? Well, he attacks the relationship between Adam and Eve, and then you have the... Uh, uh, a story of the relationship between the brothers, Cain and Abel, and then you have the sons of God with the uh, daughters of man, and then they eventually it, it goes into the whole world and God destroys it, okay, leaving only Noah, a righteous man, and so on and so forth. Okay, now we've talked about the man being the initiator. The bride is a type, of course, of the responder of God, and of course that was probably seen in a lot of the initiative roles that we talked about with the initiator, that obviously if he gives, if the Messiah gave his life for us, the response of his true bride is that they obey him. If you love me, as I said, you will obey my com- obey my commandments. Why? Because I gave to you. I gave my life to you. And so that's all summed up in the idea of her submitting to him, the head. Because even in a physical body, physiologically speaking, the body has to do what the mind tells it to do, or the head, if you will, where the directions come from, where the leadership comes from, to do. Okay? But, of course, that's based upon uh, the the um, ideal relationship of a Messiah who we know loves us and a body who responds. Okay, That's the way it should be in a marriage relationship as well. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 3, section of scripture I've mentioned many times because in the marriage relationship, it takes us back. In order to gain understanding of it, it takes us back to the garden. And that's, of course, the reason why I mention it so much. 2 Corinthians 11. It says, would to God that you would bear or could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to the Messiah. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his craftiness, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in the Messiah. Now, once again, I, I bring that up because... In understanding the whole concept of, 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 of teaching of a, of, of a bride um, that is waiting for her bridegroom, we are taking, taken back to the garden to, to be the source of what went wrong. Okay. Now, the same is true in Ephesians. In order to understand the relationship that a husband has with a wife, of course, it relates it to, uh, quote, the, the kahal of God or the, or the assembly of God, the chadut, and the Messiah himself. And as it's going through this whole thing of the Messiah giving himself for his bride and that he might present it to himself a, a glorious church, verse 27, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Then he goes on in verse 31 
or verse 30 and says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his mother and father and shall be joined unto his wife and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning the Messiah and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself and the wife, that she may reverence her husband. So, again, this is all taken back to the garden. So that's why it's essential that we understand what took place in the garden, because that seems to be where goodness begins, the pattern for what is righteous, and the mistake begins in the garden. So grasping that, I believe, is grasping many of the other things. Now, Adam had a responsibility in the garden. And there was a process that took place, as I said before. As soon as they're put together and made one, Satan immediately begins to attack. And, of course, he's going to go right for the female or the bride uh, rather than the bridegroom because he is going to usurp the initiator's responsibility. Initiator initiates. He starts things. But, uh, but Satan is going to initiate this whole activity and cause the fall. So also, the whole idea of sin entering into the world and the chaos and corruption that we see before our eyes has something to do with the usurping of someone's authority. Now, I say that because that's going to be used by Timothy concerning uh, women speaking in the church also, which we'll talk about later. Um, and I hope to make that very clear as to what's taking place there. So, we go back to the garden. Satan is first revealed, of course, as the most subtle beast of the field. He is indeed a beast, and the word subtle there, harum, in the Hebrew is also the same word for nakedness. In Hebrew, thinking, subtleness, and nakedness are the same words. Now, it's not by coincidence that in the verse before chapter, verse 1 of chapter 3, we are told that they were both naked and not ashamed. And then we turn around and have the other meaning of the word nakedness, nakedness in, in, in the Hasatan's response to what's going on, or his initiative act, not his response. So the next thing he does is he initiates type of imitation of the Messiah. He questions God's authority. That is a type. That is his usurping the responsibility of Adam, the first Adam. And that's an imitation of the Messiah as well, is to question God's authority in your life. That's part and parcel to the big lie that is going to be um, prominent in the last days, according to Second Thessalonians well, as well. The first Adam, of course, as I said, has already circumvented his function and, of course, the woman, again, naturally responds and is deceived. Adam has surrendered his role as protector and initiator and, and is surrendered over it to an, an, an imitator or a deceiver. Again, this is why it's Adam's transgression, according to Romans chapter 5, and not Eve's. Now, continuing on in, in this uh, and what the scriptures uh, say is Adam's transgression from Romans chapter 5. We read in Job chapter 31 verse 33 a comment on what took place in the garden as well. In associating transgressions, Pesha, which is one of the most heavy dutiest uh, uh, words used to express sin in the scriptures. It's association with the idea of hiding something. In other words... Not doing something. That, that to me is, is, is a very interesting thought that the tran the first transgression has to do, I believe, with not doing something. Okay? We always talk about the original sin and, and the eating of the apple and all these little myths that get into the scriptures about original sin having to do with sex or original sin having to do with what was the apple and so forth. When, when that's not, according to the testimony of scriptures, the problem here. 
The problem, according to Job 31.33, is simply this. If I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom or my heart. The word is led there. Heart. Hiding my iniquity in my heart. He hid. And of course, he's going to be hiding still when, when God later on goes to define Adam. Where are you? Okay. He hid. He did nothing. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Now suppose, suppose, just imagine for a minute that, that the Messiah comes and he doesn't fulfill and complete what Adam didn't do. And instead of going to the cross, he does nothing. He idly stands by and watches his bride go to her doom by herself. That, in essence, is what the Redeemer, I suppose, could have done. But he didn't do that. Instead, he did. He didn't hide anything. He didn't run away. But he went to that tree for his bride and joined her in her circumstances so he could remain one with her if she will now submit to him by his giving his life for her. And so the transgression of Adam is associated with what he didn't do. He idly stood by and watched her deal with the enemy. And that's one of his purposes as the male or that which speaks or acts in behalf of. In the meantime, cling to your roots, that your days may be long, and that you will prosper in everything you set your hand to do. We'll see you next time. Shalom. Turned off by religion and hypocrisy, hate being preached to, something missing in your life, you haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio.